This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday morning and uh, day of the New Hampshire primary. But it's over. It's over. I don't know if you heard this. It's done. They've already voted. Dixville Notch, New Hampshire's Dixville Notch. They voted last night. It's over. Kasich, Sanders, you're done. They won. Everybody else? It was this morning. Yeah. 12 a.m.? Yeah, so technically it was... Today. Today, so... Early today. It's over. It's ongoing. Oh, yeah. They got a whole day of people hitting the polls... Here's the deal. It's getting heated. It seems like Donald and Jeb, exclamation point, they they see each other as top rivals. Donald always brings up Jeb. Jeb brings up Donald. On MSNBC, they did a word name association, and they just named a name, and then whatever word came to mind when they were talking to Jeb, they said Donald. He said, loser. They asked Trump. He said, when they asked him about Jeb, he said, loser. Huh. It's crazy. Interesting. It's crazy. They may need to talk to somebody about that. I know. That's a weird way to use the name association. Effect there. It seems like the media, they just love stirring the pot. I saw an interview with uh, Ted Cruz's wife. Yeah. CNN interviewed her this was a while ago but they said you know pretty much it's universal that every republican in congress does not like your husband but you chose to spend the rest of your life with him now you Why? married the lug <laughs> like, what well, did she say i you know whatever you would expect a, a wife to say in support of her husband running for office but uh that's that's just a jerk question to ask somebody yeah you married a total loser it's why the it's why everybody you know in all the candidates seem to hate the media. Yeah, I mean Hillary. We always hear about how Hillary can't stand the media. The only one that seems to love the media is Trump, except he hates the media. Yes, well he loves to love and hate the media. So in a way, they actually it's it's a love hate relationship. But really, you put a camera up. All you got to do is set up a camera. You know, in in the in the Capitol building. You'll attract a politician. Yeah. It's like a light and a bunch of moths. Fly paper. They just stick right to it. So what do you do? So today's the day, folks. Uh, if you live in New Hampshire, good luck to you. We're going to be watching. I really had a feeling that, you know, maybe they were going to start winnowing down this group of, uh, I don't know what we're calling them, the governors, the... The know. establishment call, Yeah, they call the it the governors, establishment, or? but nobody really likes that name because no. a lot of them don't feel like they're the establishment, especially when everyone's trying to throw out the establishment. Right. Um, but in the end, it doesn't look like it's going to winnow down at all. Maybe after tonight. Well, you'd think so, except like Chris Christie, he's already bought his ticket to um, to the great state of South well, Carolina. And that would be the uh, the concern of having very well-endowed donors – 
who are supporting you, mm-hmm. as they say, some people call them sugar daddies, yeah. that are supporting your campaign. And if you have money, you can just keep going indefinitely until somebody else drops out because yeah. you have the funds. That's the Before, that was the one thing that started dropping off the second you lost in Iowa was money. Yeah, you, you, and if that yeah. disappeared, then you were gone. Now they have this money that's just there, and it's like with Carly Fiorina. How long is she going to hang around? I know she's not even getting on in the debates. Yeah, but you know she she could hang on. But if Kate, let's just say Kasich does well tonight, then Jeb and some of these guys should maybe jump out. But they're not going to because Jeb's got the money. He'll go to South Carolina. Yeah, if Jeb comes in fourth or whatever, he'll pick up some. And, and and some of these guys would actually, like Jeb, would pr- probably perform better in other states. Yeah, exactly. These early states really aren't ones that would, you know, are, are ones that support him as as well as others. And so if he can make it to those other states, yeah. and especially into the south, maybe he could have some more traction down there. It's, it's never going to end. No. It's not going to end. I huh. mean, eventually it'll end. Well, that's what you think. We hope. Wouldn't that be great if we ended up having three presidents? No. Yeah. Hey, Bernie Sanders uh, and Hillary—they're they're starting to get you know a little mouthy. Hillary's getting really aggressive. How so? Well, she brought up the whole smear campaign thing, yes, which ticked off a bunch of Democrats, right? But then um, all of a sudden, all of the kind of some of the feminists are jumping in. Yeah, there. I, I saw a woman. Interviewed yesterday talking about how she does not – she's not going to vote. Who was it? Madeleine Albright yesterday mm-hmm. yeah. went out and said that women need to support women. Not necessarily what the politics is. She's a woman. You should support her regardless of her politics. That's and this just... other woman's like, well, I'm a feminist and I believe my vote matters to more than just you're a, you're a female. I should vote for you. I should vote because – I'm an informed voter, and this is what I think is is the best. Not you're a, you're a woman. Yeah, that that doesn't seems, make sense to her. That you know. it seems to undermine the whole argument. It does. Now, I mean, but they would also argue that Hillary's not just a woman. But the last election cycle, Hillary was able to have great inroads against uh, Obama when, when she ran the last time. Was it 08? She, mm-hmm. Yeah, she ran in 08. Uh, she had great inroads against uh, Obama with the female voter. Yeah. And so she's trying to kind of go around in the, in the same way and finding that it's a whole different audience that doesn't think that way anymore. Maybe. We're not voting for you because we're both women. That's not going to work. We have to have a reason to vote for you. Well, and if that is – if that's the rationale that Madeleine Albright wants, then they really ought to be voting for Carly Fiorina in the GOP election. Yeah. Well, theoretically. Yeah. Boy. It's just a crazy – it's a crazy time because Hillary's not – she doesn't have the poll with the younger women. No. But that's because uh, – Gloria Steinem says that's because the younger women are just following the younger men. Yeah, they're, they're going where the boys are. It's so sad. And so they, she got a bunch of pushback they on have that. To, <laughs> they have to diminish the younger women like they don't have their own brains to follow Bernie Sanders. The younger women are feeling the burn. Apparently. They're, they're feeling. They're feeling. Yeah, that sounds weird. It does. It's a weird comment you know that he wants people to repeat. Hey, today, by the way, is Extraterrestrial Culture Day. Um, just for those of you that are keeping score, celebrate those things that we have no idea about. Uh, if you have you been to Roswell, New Mexico? No, I've been there. I've been to the museum there. Okay, and uh, 
What did you learn? What did you glean from the experience? I learned that extraterrestrials have a wonderful culture okay. that they were trying to bring to this great planet. Weren't they trying to invade or perform well, some sort I, of – I don't know if it was invasion. I think they're just trying to assimilate. To, they're just trying to but bring the, a little those bit al- of – Those heaven. aliens are supposed to be little like gray, big-headed, big-eyeballed. Yeah, funny-looking people. You're not going to be able to assimilate well. Well, true. But, I mean, not at the beach. Right, but they okay. could put some clothes on and All right. a hat, a nice hat, and then just go to the mall. If you've been to some malls, or you know, uh, if you've been to a Walmart supercenter, okay, there's all kinds of alien-looking life forms <laughs> there. Is that what you were? They pointing could to? assimilate. Okay, I could um, see that. Future, so so they're here to just basically they want they wanted to forge relationships, future partnerships. Anyway, today we're celebrating Extraterrestrial Culture Day. Well, great. Not bad. It's also National Pizza Day. Here's a test for you. Ben, are you ready to be tested too? Lay it on me. Uh, What of all the pizza pies ordered, what is the most popular pizza? 36% of pizzas are this type of pizza. Pepperoni. Wow. How did you know that? How did you know that? It's pizza. Everyone gets pepperoni pizza. Do they? Over 3 billion pizzas are sold in the U.S. each year. Another 1 billion are frozen pizzas. Mm. Isn't that great news? Do you guys like a good frozen pizza? No. No, not at all. (laughs) Um, What percentage of all U.S. restaurants – I'll give you within 5%. Okay. What percentage of U.S. restaurants are pizzerias? Ooh. 30. 30%? 25%. Uh, the answer is 17%. Oh, oh. 17%. Um, how about this one? First uh, pizzeria opened in Naples in 1738, Antica Pizzeria. Hmm. I think Antica might mean old. Could be. Uh, Gennaro Lombardi, the first pizzeria in the United States, opened in 1895 in New York City. Holy cow. Americans consume on average how many pounds of pizza a year? Like per sitting or? <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's just say. Gonna... So just take your per sitting average and then times it by 52 weeks. Oh. Ben? Let's say 20 pounds a year. Ooh. 23 pounds a year. Oof. 23 pounds of pizza a year. And I'm going to bet it's more than that. Could be. That's about how many pounds of ice cream Americans eat per year. Really? Mm-hmm. No. He would know. That's Trying to weird. launch his ice cream business. When is that going to be launched? Yeah. There's a lot uh, of talk. A lot of action. April is my first gig. Ooh. So, Sandy, Utah. He's got an ice April cream. April 9th. Ice cream gig. Um, if you uh, if if you want to learn more about it, someday you're going to have a, what are they called? A fundraiser thing. What are they called? GoFund. Yes. GoFundMe. GoFund Kickstarter. We're going to go have a GoFundMe Kickstarter pizza party. GiveMeFreeMoney.com. When is the, when are you launching that? That's a good question. Okay. Well, I have a feeling this business isn't going to succeed at this rate. First step, get a plan. But he does have a gig in April. That's half the battle. And if nice. you want Ben to provide ice cream for your wedding, your funeral, any celebration, give us a call, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. I'm especially good at funerals, so... 
<laughs> Keep that in mind. Nothing says funeral better than Rocky Road. Hey, uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else is going on around the rest of the world? Continuing with New Hampshire, it, it, it poses a particular set of difficulties for candidates. New Hampshire doesn't make it easy. Nearly 50% of the state's registered voters are independent, which means they can choose to vote either either party in the primary. Additionally, Granite State voters have a reputation for being extremely picky and staying undecided up until the very last minute. With just hours to go before polls begin to open course at midnight last night many still haven't made up their minds new hampshire also reputation for picking the candidate who goes on to be the actual presidential nominee new hampshire picks presidents the people what well, this is the people of iowa pick corn the people of new hampshire pick presidents right. that was uh, governor john sununu boasted in 1988 however with the three most recent elections winners bill clinton george w bush and barack obama finished second in the new hampshire primaries with the four presidents before them being new hampshire primary winners so that hasn't been the case as of come on new hampshire history. let's get back in the game president former president bill clinton now stumping for his wife has a, he's starting to feel that, that itch from when he ran. Oh, boy. The hotter this election gets, the more I wish I were just a former president and just for a few months not the spouse of the next one. Oh, boy. Because, you know, I'd be careful what I say. Yeah, so he's he's like, he wants to say things he, he can't. He wants to unleash the Kraken. After much speculation, billionaire Michael Bloomberg said he is considering a run for the presidency. Bloomberg made his first admission to an interview published on Monday in the Financial Times. He was, I find the level of discourse and discussion distressingly banal and out and an outrage and an insult to the voters, the mm. former mayor of New York said. So we'll see what happens if he jumps in, if that has an That'll effect. change everything. Could be. A state board on Monday approved the circulation of, of a petition to recall Michigan Governor Rick Snyder in the wake of the Flint water crisis. The Board of State Canvassers, which is part of a Secretary of State's office, approved a petition to recall the governor for creating the State School Reform Redesign Office, which organizers say disregard local prerogatives. Prerogatives. There mm-hmm. we go. Uh, the board rejected nine petitions in connection with his handling of lead contamination from corroded pipes that began leaching into Flint residents' home after the city switched to wa- switched water sources. The state and federal authorities are investigating the water crisis, so a petition will be out there for about 180 days. It needs 789,000 signatures in a 60-day period to put his name on the ballot for recall. Ooh, so we'll see what happens to the Michigan yeah. governor. Uh, final story here: a Florida man which always means fun, is to follow. Uh, allegedly threw an alligator through a Wendy's drive through window, has been taken into custody, record show. His name's Joshua James, 23, faces charges of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, the alligator, <laughs> uh, petty theft, and unlawful possession of an alligator, which apparently is a law <laughs> in Florida. He allegedly threw a three-and-a-half-foot reptile through the drive through window after being served a large drink. Holy cow. James told investigators he picked the alligator up on the side of the road, brought it to the fast food restaurant, and tossed it through the window. You guys want a gator? Just throw a gator in the window? These yeah. poor workers. What, they're making $10 an hour, and they're getting a gator thrown at them. Yeah, apparently. So uh, they uh, were able to corral the lizard and put it back in the local water source but uh, still <laughs> i would know by the way because i watch all the gator shows i know how to corral a gator okay you jump on its back you cover its eyes i went to one of those shows in florida where the guy yeah. sticks his hand yeah. and his head i did and, that too yeah. freaked me out that was a little nuts he even taught you just stay you just got to stay by his ear if you just stay by their ear they can't they can't bite you 
So just a little update. If, if you want to make sure you don't get killed by a gator, somehow get near its neck and stay by its ear. Or just don't go by it. Well, what if it's thrown at you? Duh. You got to deal with it. Yeah, but you don't have to stick your head in its... No, don't ever stick your head in its mouth. Okay. I mean, unless you're a trained professional. But just stay by its ear. That's what I learned. It can't can't turn its head. It can only turn its head so far. So if you stay by its ear, you're always behind its ear. They can't scratch their ear with their mouth. Famous last words. By One Leg Joe, the gator hunter. Can you believe it? Having a gator thrown at you. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, um, have you ever noticed that uh, during – really, actually all year. It's not just during uh, political season. But a lot of people use the politics of fear. You hear a lot of uh, stories in the news. You read a lot of articles where you know, they're, they're spewing a lot of statistics that should make you – you know, feel like you're irrational because of some of your fears. We're going to be talking to a graduate student who's uh, written a wonderful article in uh, Psychology Today about the politics of fear. And a lot of it's just misidentified stats, misused statistics. Stick with us, folks. There might be a better way to handle people's fear than just making them feel stupid. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with the recent attacks from ISIS all over the world, remember in Paris and San Bernardino, uh, a sense of fear has seemed to overwhelm many individuals. News outlets uh, all over the world seem to be taking a side. Either we are too afraid of ISIS or we're too complacent. Many of these articles seem to be misleading, attempting to persuade the reader with anything other than facts. Joining us today is Jesse Marzak, a doctoral student at uh, New Mexico State University studying evolutionary psychology. In his article, The Politics of Fear, Jesse claims it's not a matter of rational or irrational fears, but an issue with, of the willingness to accept flawed arguments or incorrect statistics that, would otherwise immediately, that we would otherwise immediately reject. Instead, we support these flawed statistics and that's really maybe what we ought to be looking at, not our rationality. Uh, we're so excited to have him. He wrote this wonderful article, The Politics of Fear. Jesse Marzak, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? Oh, just fine. Good. I, I have an opportunity here. Good to have you. And um, congrats on your studies down there. How, how soon till you're all done with the doctorate? Uh, the defense should be held at the later portion of this month. Woo! Very recent. Oh, my heavens. You're almost there, man. You're almost there. Talk to us about this article, uh, The Politics of Fear. Um, we, we really do. There, there is a lot of uh, fear. And I, I guess what I kind of got from the article is maybe what we should be focusing more on is not like branding the fear rational or irrational, but, but really looking at the data that, that people use to present, to present their argument. I mean, a lot of the information we're using makes it so that I guess what's happening is we're finding the data that justifies the position we're taking instead of just looking at the data neutrally. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes, that would be a good representation of the general points I'm hoping to make there. Talk to uh, us about mind, that. I wanted to start the discussion off with something that might seem a little unrelated. Yeah. The relevance will become apparent very soon. So if you imagine you're a doctor and you're trying to test and see if people have a particular infection or not, and naturally you're going to have a tool for carrying these tests out, but as every tool in this world is, the tool you have is imperfect. So in this case, if you're testing someone for the infection and they have it, 95% of the time your test is going to tell you that they have the disease correctly. And if you're testing someone without the infection, 5% of the time this test is going to return a positive result nonetheless. So there's a 5% false positive rate. So faced with those two numbers, you have someone in your office and they've tested positive for this infection. And so you want to know, given that they have tested positive, what are the odds they actually have the infection? Mm -hmm. Now, many people are going to snap answer that question and say 95% of the time. But in fact, from the information that I've provided you so far, you're really unable to answer the question. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah, the key piece of information that you're missing is the base rate of the infection in the population which means what percent of the population actually has it. If just for the moment we assume that 5% of the people that we're testing actually have the infection, then a positive result in this test means there's about a 50% chance they actually have it. Hmm. And this 50% number is arrived at by noting that 5% of the people who are infected, 95% of them are going to test positive. Similarly, of the 95% of people who are not infected, 5% will test positive. And the result of this, and a little bit of simple math, tells you that you have a one-to-one -one ratio in positive to false positive test results. Hmm. So this is an application of what we know to call Bayes' theorem. And I don't need to get into the math behind it, even though it is fairly simple. But the basic idea behind Bayes' theorem is that you need to have information on what we call base rates, population-level information, if you want to be making these kinds of conclusions. So let me give you let me let me let me just try to make sense of it for the lay person. I mean, and in my mind, um, because in a lot of the articles that are citing, let's say, terrorist rates and the the likelihood of you being killed by a terrorist, they might compare it, for example, to a car accident. Um, yeah. So so maybe kind of take us there, and then all of a sudden the base theorem kind of takes over, right? Uh, sort of. Teach us. Yeah, when it comes to applying base rates to these types of problems, people don't always do it very well. I wanted to talk about a 2002, uh, not a 2000 paper by Philip Tetlock and his colleagues very briefly. And they had an experiment examining how people from different political groups were applying this base rate information when it comes to, in this case, selling insurance policies. Hmm. So in this experiment, they had participants, they're told about six different towns that are classified according to their insurance risk. Things like fires, break-ins, and the like. Three of the towns are high risk. Three of the towns are low risk. Now, if you want to set your insurance rates to maximize your profits, you want to discriminate your price based on risk. If someone is not at a risk of an accident, you want to charge them less for an insurance policy than someone who is at a high risk. And when you're asking people, is it okay to price discriminate based on risk, liberals, conservatives, moderates, these people all tend to agree that, yes, you should be allowed to. But the twist on this experiment, as in most psychological research, comes when they start telling participants that some of these risks just so happen to correlate with race demographics, mm. specifically that 85% of the people in the high-risk areas, in this case, happen to be black or white. 
And when they were black, you see the liberal groups now begin to say that using this base right information is immoral and that it shouldn't be allowed and that everyone should be charged the same type of rate, regardless of their risk. So the insurance company that has no interest in discriminating based on risk per se, if their discrimination just so happens to be based on risk, there are some political groups that are willing to throw out the data because it also relates with race. Hmm. And they don't view it, as Tetlock and his colleagues said, as a tricky statistical issue. They view it as a moral one. Yeah. And they're saying that you should not be allowed to use certain population demographics, usually because it doesn't paint a particularly flattering picture or it isn't beneficial towards a particular social group one is trying to protect. Right. So they're not even really looking at the real data. They're looking at the emotional you know, impact of the data. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the people who are currently talking about our levels of fear, whether they're appropriate or not, I don't necessarily think that's a, a useful question, but they are trying to do something very similar from either side of the issue. Right. And, and there were two articles I talked about in my post, and they predominantly focused on the framing of this issue in terms of how afraid should we be of terrorism. And specifically, they're trying to make the threat posed by Muslims from terror attacks seem to be as inconsequential as humanly possible. And in order to do that, they need to ignore this important base rate data and, in some cases, just ignore inconvenient data altogether. Hmm. So the first example of this was an article from the New York Times website, which was entitled, Homegrown Extremists Tied to a Deadlier Toll Than Jihadists in the U.S. Since 9-11. And... Naturally, as the title suggests, they're trying to tell you that you don't need to worry about the death toll from jihadists because we already have a much larger threat looming in the U.S., the homegrown terrorists or extremists, as they would call them. Right. So there are some very important points to make about this data, three of them that I think are worth noting. The first is that the article was initially based on the conclusion that since 9-11, There have been twice as many deaths resulting from far-right extremist attacks, a total of 48 bodies in about a decade, as opposed to the jihadists, which had only killed 26. And so therefore, they were saying that the right-wing extremists were twice as dangerous as Muslim extremists. Hmm. Now, this article was published in late June, and by December earlier, I mean, December later that year, the body count had evened out owing to the 14 people who were killed in San Bernardino, California. So this would naturally raise the question, if the article is trying to persuade people that they're being irrational about their fear because fewer people were killed by jihadists, once those numbers evened out in that same year, were those people who were initially more fearful of Islamic terrorists actually being more, to use their word, rational or justified? Right, now they have the logic, yeah. Essentially, they're talking about rationality in hindsight. And the second point to make about this data is that, as the title also suggests, it begins immediately after 9-11. Right. Now, that's a very strange rhetorical move, because if their death toll counter is turned back just a single day, the number of bodies attributable to jihadists jumps by about 3,000. <laughs> which, of course, doesn't count the people who subsequently died from illnesses resulting from responding to ground right. zero. Blows up the so argument, on. yeah. Yeah, and so since this data point is pretty inconvenient 
or a particular social policy specifically regarding, I don't know, immigration or distrust of certain groups. Some people would feel justified in pretending that doesn't exist. Now, they'll give you some rationalization for this, such as, well, 9-11 was an outlier. It was too extreme. It's going to throw the numbers off if we include it. So let's just not worry about that right now. And you could make some arguments for or against whether that's appropriate, although I doubt that that data point would be disregarded if it was a different group in question, specifically one that the writer does not typically right. like or wish to protect. But the premise is they're trying to they're trying to create the data that they need to make their argument. Yeah, and when the data doesn't fit their argument, so much worse for the data. Mm-hmm. And is that I guess that's what's common. You're saying in a lot of the articles, um, is, it, you just got to really look at the data and see what they're trying to prove or disprove. Uh, looking at the data is certainly helpful. I would think one of the more useful first steps is to look at what they're trying to persuade you about. Mm-hmm. In the first case, they're trying to persuade you that there was a two-to-one death toll between right-wing and Islamic extremists in their death toll. Right. Later that year, it was a one-to-one. And if we turn the clock back one day to September 11th, that number drops to 0.01-to-one. Yeah. I mean, it's it, – but you're saying, though, they're doing it – they're doing it for – they're doing it for a reason, and – and and so you, you can actually see that just in their first argument. Whatever they're presenting as their argument, they're going to show the data to validate their argument. Yes. And and, and I guess part, a lot of this is about rationality. They keep using the term it's irrational basically. Yeah, that term – I find a very hard time finding any use in it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what it's supposed to mean for someone to be rational or irrational. Right. And that's probably going to depend specifically on the person you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Some, per, some person's fears might seem irrational at different levels, but actually hide a deeper logic as applied to the particular context in which they live. Hmm. You know what, Jesse? Let's take a break and come back and continue sure. this discussion. We're speaking with uh, graduate candidate uh, Jesse Marsak from um, New Mexico State University. He's an evolutionary psychologist. Actually, will be defending his thesis later this month. And uh, we're talking about the politics of fear and some of uh, Jesse's work on um, evaluating some of the the articles that have come out that that basically highlight and pinpoint fear that we all fear or have and and uh, are experiencing when it comes to uh, to terrorism and uh, he's trying to help us maybe look at a better way to discuss our concerns when it comes to um, to, to anything going on in, in the country instead of using fear to create the argument maybe there's other ways to create healthier conversation stick with us folks this is the Matt Townsend show we'll be right back everybody to the Matt Townsend show. Uh, Dr. Matt here today we're talking about the politics of fear and we are discussing this with Jesse Marzak who's a doctoral student at New Mexico State University studying evolutionary psychology. He'll be defending his dissertation later in the month and um, 
He's written a wonderful article uh, in Psychology Today titled The Politics of Fear, where he, he basically reviews uh, some some uh, press articles about um, just about fear. And he gets into the fact that many times we disregard facts, uh, the real data. We might skew maybe sampling sizes. We may not use base rate uh, theorem when we're discussing statistics and so it kind of ends up just basically it allows people to create data that serves their position instead of just aggregating the data in kind of an objective way and then letting that create the position. Um, we welcome you back, Jesse Marzak, to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for being with us. Hey, no problem. Talk to us about uh, this this you know the the kind of having taking a stance and then trying to create your fact your data set i mean is this a new thing or is this just what we've been doing for years oh no this is this is a human universal that has been going back likely as long as there have been people who have the ability to talk about things yeah yeah uh, we we skew the story yeah if you get writers who are setting out to write a piece and they begin with the question, perhaps, why are people afraid of this group or this thing? They're going to end up with a much different paper at the end of that process than if they begin writing with their conclusion that people really ought not to fear this particular thing. Huh. Yeah. Or they really ought to fear it. And since the conclusion, I think, is coming first in the writing of these articles – they only seek out information that actually ends up supporting this conclusion. Hmm. So if you want to talk about, let's say, how many people are being killed because of various types of terrorism, specifically right-wing or Islamic, as they have been, and you start with the premise that there is, let's even give them the benefit of the doubt and say there was a two-to-one difference. That is, for every one person killed by an Islamic jihadist extremist, there were two people killed by a right-wing extremist in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, the U.S. population, if we're just doing some rough measures of how many right-wing and uh, Muslim individuals there are, about 42% of the U.S. population identifies as Republican, and about 1% of the U.S. population identifies as Muslim. So with these figures in mind, we want to scale the, the actual body count to those population numbers. If you were looking at some population that had 1,000 people and you say they commit 10 murders, that has a much different significance than looking at a population of 100 people who commit Mm -hmm. 10 murders. So if you wanted to achieve some kind of representation in the population, you would expect that since the right-wing people are 42 times more common than the Islamists, that they should correspondingly leave 42 times as many bodies where they equally threaten However, this rather important piece of information is not really mentioned at all in the pieces I'm talking about. Right. They both simply refer to the absolute number of people who have been killed, yeah. which frankly is fairly low. If you're talking about 50 to 100 people, either from one group or from both groups collectively in over a decade, that's not a lot of bodies. And perhaps... You could use that argument to say people really shouldn't be getting worked up about this. Yeah. But even there, I think there's some room for concern. 
For instance, when there was the shooting in Paris, uh, Lawrence Krauss wrote a paper entitled Thinking Rationally About Terror, and he specifically compared people's risk of death from terrorism to that from dying in a car accident. Right. And apparently people in Paris are approximately as equal to have been killed by a terrorist in that attack than they were to have died in a car accident that year. So I'm going to take him out his words that those data are accurate. Right. But the number of bodies, again, in this case, would only really tell us so much. People aren't recoiling in horror and fear from cars. So why not? I mean, the first point is to note that people obviously do, to some extent, fear cars. We fear them so much that we restrict who can drive them. Right. We have speed limits. You don't walk in front of one. Right. Yeah, you look both ways before you cross the street. And if we lived in a world where people did not fear the risk posed by cars, people who could drive as fast as they want, no stop signs, they strolled blindly into traffic across the street, we would probably live in a world where many, many more people were killed by cars than the world in which we currently exist. Hmm. So to some extent, it is possible that people's fears about terrorism and the efforts they put into reducing it are, in fact, precisely responsible for the low death toll that we see resulting from it. Right. Is it is this, though, just because, Jesse, that we have a bunch of journalists or let's just say pundits or, um, you know, just opinionated people making these – writing these articles instead of a bunch of statisticians? Oh, certainly not. I mean, Many of the people who do write these articles are, in fact, very well educated. They're just not wanting to tell the whole story. No, their goal is not to paint an accurate picture for the public. Right, right. And when people go on Facebook and they read these articles and they click the share button, they're usually not clicking it, in some cases, when they've even read the article. But assuming they have, they're not clicking it because they've gone on a fact-finding mission and they believe this to be the best representation of the world. They're clicking it because they read it. It sounded plausible to them, mm-hmm. perhaps because it fits the the sense of the world they already have, yeah. or it supports their particular partic- political conclusion, or it points out their political rivals are idiots, whatever they call right. it. And once they click that send button, they're not trying to disseminate true information as much as they're trying to send a message to their their social peers as to who they're supporting in these arguments. It's kind of like an inside joke. I yeah. guess you could say. Yeah. No, and Facebook's a great example because you do – you see more and more of those articles coming through and then people – you're saying they just – facts aside are irrelevant. They just resonate with the person's – with their paradigm, with their view of the world and then they just repost it and you know like it on and send it on to everyone else. Yeah. It's important to remember that these articles are intended to be persuasive in nature. And persuasion is one of those realms of human existence where occasionally being wrong or at least representing incorrect information to others can actually be useful. Hmm. And if you're dealing with the natural world, if you're dealing with, let's say, gravity, it doesn't pay to be wrong because you can't negotiate with gravity. Right. You can't persuade it. You can actually make a jump across a cliff that you actually can't. Yeah. But when it comes to persuading people – you actually can benefit from incorrectly representing information to them. Because if someone else is behaving on the basis of false information, that doesn't mean you're doing anything 
that's likely going to harm you. Right, right. So what what would be a better way? Let's say that I'm somebody that's trying to be more objective, not just promote my fears. What would be a better way to, to get into these fears and to understanding the fears of others instead of just well, trying to coerce them into my view? Sure. It certainly helps for you to not have a personal stake in the debate. If you do, that's already going to make your your fact-finding a bit more difficult. Yeah. Because if, even if you do go out on a fact-finding mission, we're going to evaluate evidence differently, contingent on how well it fits with our particular position. We might read about a particular paper that someone posted and think that their facts aren't right or they're overlooking something, and that may well be true. But then at the same time, we're going to pick up another article that sits well with what we already believe, and we're going to give it less scrutiny. Yeah. So really, we have to understand our bias. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily something that one can just turn off. Right. Right. Nor are we really in the position to assess how biased we ourselves are. Yeah, exactly. Poll, like college professors – you get the result back that 88 or so percent of them think they're above average relative to their peers. <laughs> and, and they don't know no. that they're biased in this regard. Right. They well, think that, yeah, I'm actually that good. I am the bomb. Um, yeah. it's, again, I guess that's human nature. That's why I guess why an evolutionary, evolutionary psychologist is studying it. Um, you know, as we as we wrap it up, uh, Jesse, talk to us. Just what should we? What can we do? Just as a reader of the news and a reader uh, and a listener to the to the radio talk shows, is there anything else we can do to just kind of remain open? The best way I have to try and perhaps deal with this issue as best one can is to just not take dissenting opinions as reasons to break off friendships or reasons to stop listening to someone or reasons to remove them from your social media. Yeah. You want an actual diversity of thought in your social group. And this diversity of thought could perhaps help spread your interests out to wider groups of people. So you're not just interested in the arguments in the welfare of liberals or conservatives or people who like a particular band or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Religion, yeah. Yeah, if you expand your social circle out into wider groups of people and you have a legitimate interest in their welfare, you're likely to take their arguments more seriously. Whereas if you start cutting people who disagree with you out of your lives, you surround yourself with the same opinion over and over again, and it's not easy to always see if that opinion has gone wrong. No, I agree. I agree. Jesse Marsak, that's just great advice and great advice from a, a Ph.D. candidate. How, how apropos, quite honestly, when we think about it, folks, you know, openness. It also increases your ability to influence others as well and to share your opinion. Um, the more groups that you're in, you, mo- you know, you may not like everything you're hearing, but OK, but you can hear it. 
Um, interesting. Powerful stuff. Appreciate uh, Jesse Marsak. Wish him the best of luck at New Mexico State University as he defends his uh, dissertation later this month. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue the discussion uh, on the opposite side of the commercials. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I mean, it's so true. We listen, we read, we, we'll turn on tonight, we'll hear all about what happened in New Hampshire. And in reality, there's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it, it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody... And I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. Or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. And the same is true when we think about um, our political candidates, when we think about the person running. Think about it. If you are a conservative, in the back of your mind, are you not constantly thinking about Hillary's email scandals? And how they're eventually going to tear her apart. And ironically, you don't even hear many articles about her email scandals in the liberal media. So why won't the liberal journalists pick up on it? And it's only those right-wing conspiracy groups. Bias. There's just bias. There's inherent bias. Is there an inherent bias uh, to the fact that Bernie Sanders is is older and we want to know how old he is? And does age really matter? Well, it does with Bernie. But is Rubio too young? It depends. If you're pro-Rubio, you want a young guy like Rubio. Come on. It's amazing. And one year a candidate's age matters and another year it shouldn't matter. And we just heard a huge discussion a couple of weeks ago about Hillary Clinton. She's, she's a yeller. She's a screamer. She's always screaming. You wouldn't say that if she was a man. So it's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And what uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that scientifically we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position – And then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That's why they call it the spin room. So after the New Hampshire election, you're going to see a bunch of spinners spinning. And so Hillary got close enough to Bernie that, oh, see, it wasn't a huge blowout. Or Bernie's pulling away, but of course he was going to. It's New Hampshire. He lives right by there. 
Anyway, watch the spinsters, and more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. What do you believe, and how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the information, the tools, the skills you need to live a healthier, happier life. Today, we'll be talking about personal finance. It doesn't have to be difficult, Terry. No. Apparently, you can put her on an index card, right? Yeah, just a card. A three by five. Yeah. I like to put everything on my credit card. It's probably not the card they're thinking of. That's why we are having a personal finance expert on today. Uh, We'll be talking about personal finance. It's also chocolate day. Mm. Are you a big chocolate fan? Mm, Not really. No. It's okay. I don't have a problem with chocolate. I just don't. We always think that women love chocolate. They tend to love chocolate. But I think that's because, the, well, what are they supposed to say? No. I hate it. There's I, some that say they'd rather something else. I mean, I'd rather have mac and cheese myself. Mm, mac and cheese is good. Smothered in chocolate. Especially when you're, once you, you boil the noodles and then you pull out that yellow powder. Like, this has mm. to be healthy. Let's just sprinkle Maybe maybe go into into another box, pull out another packet of yellow powder, so you double goodness. the powder. Mm. So uh, one day I went to take my shoes into the um, cobbler, cobbler, the village cobbler, Giuseppe, uh-huh. and he. I was sitting there. They were just I can't remember. They were fixing them, and while I, while I was waiting, putting your heels, your uh-huh. lifts, your Marco yeah, putting Rubio my yeah, putting my my three inch lifts in. <laughs> And I'm I'm in my car without my shoes on, just listening mm. to Sirius XM. Okay. 143. Of course. Always. It's locked on. And I'm next to a, a chocolate shop, a chocolatier. Yes. And one by one, cars would pull up. Women would go in. Everyone was a woman. Yeah. And I sat there for about 40 minutes. So this is a really good sample. Sounds good to me. Didn't see one man go in there. Sounds like science. But the, then they would come out and then they would sit in their car hmm. and do the chocolate as if they were doing drugs. <laughs> they'd stop, close their eyes. Like, see, yeah, they would. They'd close their eyes and they would just experience the chocolate. Mm, they would just chew. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. I felt like – I felt strange, like I should have called the cops. Wow. This lady's doing a little – there's a woman a in her turtle. car. She's doing some 73% chocolate. cocoa. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pure. She has a truffle, I think. Oh, and they, they would just, seriously, they would just, nobody just drove away. Yeah. They had to partake of one. Mm. And they didn't want to drive. They didn't want to lose the sensory overload moment. That's interesting that that can, it looks like it's it's a moment. It's an yeah. experience. They, it's they something are. they need to feel. And I'm like, I need to hose these people down. Well, I would just pop one in and right. drive away. Just Who be cares? driving away. Yeah. Who doesn't do that? Right. That's why I don't buy, like, malt balls. Yeah. Oh, yuck. Do you I'd like go, those? I love those. Do I'd, you really? i go through the whole box. Ah, They're evil. They are evil. No, I'm not into chocolate. I'm not a, I'm not. I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'd eat them. Yeah. 
But it's not your first choice. I won't go buy chocolate. You're more of a Starburst guy. No. I'm a fish. I'm a Swedish fish guy. Really? Yeah. I think that's even less than a food product than Starburst. Oh, for sure. Right. But it, I like it because it seems healthier because it's just a get, fish. Why don't you get Pez? Oh, I love Pez. Get some chocolate, chalky, just yeah. nothing. But you know what? I don't like Pez because I don't like... Like nibbling on the neck of something. Yeah, that is kind of weird. You pop the. Why dispenser. do they come out their neck? Eh, it's just convenience. I mean, figure out a way to make it come out its mouth. But then you're going to be chomping out the mouth. Yeah, Pez were always weird to me. I think I'm too visual. So you're watching women have some sort of like yeah, emotional, physical response mm-hmm. to the chocolate yeah. as they scramble to their car. Right. And, and I realize that, yeah, I don't have that. I don't have that with a food. See, my wife, she's the one that she, that is the first to say that, you know, it's dark chocolate. It's good for you. It has antioxidants. Yeah. And that somehow cancels out all the other problems with the, the lack seems, of healthiness of the chocolate. Right. That's some, something's weird there. It's called justification. Because they also now they eat like blueberries covered in dark chocolate. So yeah. it's like doubly good for you. Yeah, it's good. It's it, blueberries. They Antioxidant. And like, seriously, how much health can that chocolate possibly give you? The answer is little. Well, and let's just say it's probably one or two little pieces. Yeah. By the time you're downing your 40th piece, your health effects, <laughs> long gone. Long but it, gone. But it was good, though. Very good. Being oh, chocolate. so good. Um, so you heard – we talked the other day about uh, a, a, ty- a leopard – did we talk about a leopard? Or was it a... It was a, a jaguar. There's a jaguar walking... Is it, in, is it in Florida? No, that was in Arizona. Oh, yeah, that's right. Arizona. But now there's a or was leopard. was it a panther? It was a panther. It was a big cat. It was a big panther. Yeah. It was, lo- it was loose in, in, uh, in, in Arizona, but there's one in India, Now right? there's one in India in, at a school. Yeah. What in the world do you do when a leopard attacks at a school? Lock your doors. I mean, and we're sitting here worried about, you know, weird guys getting into a, a school. Right. You have wild man-eating animals. Man. Well, have they seen the Jungle Book? <laughs> oh, there's a guide. That'll, that'll teach you how to deal Make with that Make friends situation. with a leopard. That's right. the tiger. <laughs> well, it's Life of Pi. <laughs> He's out on the boat with the big tiger. Yeah. My yeah. kids, after reading or watching Life of Pi or whatever, they all wanted a big tiger. Because they're furry and you can – Here, you can, kitty, 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 right. kitty. So, yeah, the, there's several people been attacked in that school. Mm-hmm. And I, have, they, have they caught it yet? Uh, I think they caught it. Okay. And they, they done it, – It took a while for the, the proper authorities with the right amount of tranquilizers to show up and take the thing down. Um, did you hear about – you think that's scary? Did you hear about what happened with in the Netherlands? Police in Amsterdam – Mistakenly kicked in a door. Hearing this sound, or sound similar to this. Is she okay? And it's a, it's a, it was a local opera singer that was practicing. But the reports from the residents, they they said they heard a man screaming. Hmm. So the police went there, and they heard the terrifying screams coming from the home, and they kicked in the door. They began to knock, but the singer didn't answer the door. 
Apparently the singer was wearing headphones, and they just kicked in the door. Freeze! Freeze! And then you know what they have to do when they kick in the door? They've got to go to our trusty tool. Taze it! I have some news about tasers. And he sang no more. So if you are practicing your opera... Hmm. Alert your neighbors? A, alert your neighbors. B, don't wear a headset. Right. C, keep it down. A little bit. Don't roar. learn to sing so you don't sound like a man being attacked. See, but could you listen to opera and, I guess, tell if it's quality versus what we were just listening to? Well, yeah, I could tell if it's quality. Okay. I mean, to a point. I'm not big into opera, but I know that that didn't sound very good. Yeah. If I had enough chocolate on board. Right. You could dole the the senses enough. If I had a bowl of mac and cheese, I could listen to – I think I could like – if I – I actually – I already know this. If I know what the story's about and I know what she's saying or he's saying as they're singing, then I'm more moved by it. But then there's like prep before the event. Well, yeah. You have to do homework. Yeah, that's why. It's like the Super Bowl. All these people that know everything about the game, the Super Bowl becomes even more exciting. You know? I guess. I, I just – the Super Bowl for me is more passive learning because I'm kind of paying attention as <laughs> yeah, it goes. Yeah, but you spent your whole life learning. But, but as – you know, all of a sudden you try to do opera and you have to – That's what you need to do with your son is spend his whole life learning opera now so that when he's older he can enjoy it. I don't know. Well, we may We may sing opera, but that's what we call it. We're just screaming. Yeah, like that lady, and then that'll yeah. get you tased, and that'll get the door kicked in. <laughs> and the cops show up. It's not you, worth it. You get your house swatted. <laughs> that's all you need. And then all of a sudden you're on some live stream as the SWAT come in. Hey, uh, anything going on in the headlines, Terry, we need to worry about? There are. The FBI released documents Monday confirming an agency investigation of presidential contender Hillary Clinton's controversial private email server. A letter from the FBI general counsel James Baker made public the night before Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. He admitted the inquiry is ongoing but does not clarify whether it is tied to a criminal case or expands further than the security review. However... The letter marks the first time that the agency has formally and publicly notified the State Department of such a probe. So it's official. The FBI is investigating. It's, a, it's official now. It's official. Yes. Okay. It was always just sort of said, yeah. now it's official. Because <laughs> we've mentioned that several times yeah. that the FBI has never said anything. Now they have. Though they haven't mentioned any specific focus, scope, or potential targets of the investigation. Okay. But they are investigating. We're going step-by-step with this. Okay, interesting. The White House will approve or propose spending of $11 billion over the next 10 years to fight uh, family homelessness. Nearly 26% of the country's homeless families are in New York uh, State and most of those in New York City. As part of of, uh, President Obama's 2017 budget, which will be uh, presented Tuesday... The president expected to ask that $8.8 billion of the proposed money go to housing vouchers and additional $2.2 to short-term assistance. The amount proposed in the budget is intended to end family homelessness by 2020 or when the new guy comes in next year and puts in a new budget. Hmm. Or gal. Excuse me. I didn't want to exclude Hillary, <laughs> the new gal. Uh, unhappy. Speaking of Hillary, unhappy with her campaign's performance thus far, Hillary Clinton is reportedly considering a shake-up shake of her staff 
after the New Hampshire primary, which the former Secretary of State is expected to lose. The campaign's message and digital operations are allegedly of particular concern to Clinton. Quote, Mm. there's nobody sitting in the middle of this empowered to create a message and implement it, said one source close to the situation to Politico. Scary. They are kind of rudderless, the source added. They better work this out fast because whoever the Republicans pick is going to be 29 times tougher than Bernie. Hillary Clinton reacts to this report. I have no idea what they're talking about or who they're talking to. Uh, We're going to take stock, but Mm. it's going to be the campaign that I've got. I'm very confident in the people that I have. I'm very committed to them. They're committed to uh, doing the best we can. We're going to take stock. What works, what doesn't work. We're moving into a different phase of the campaign. So everything's Mm. fine until they fire everybody. So if somebody's fired, then she's not being truthful there. Not necessarily. She says they're taking stock. They're taking stock, but we're going to have the same people, the same campaign. We're all in. I mean, it's all we're all in. But some people may not measure up. It's a different campaign after New Hampshire, which it is. Sure. It turns into a whole different animal. Suspects who have been tased by police while being taken into custody are more likely to waive their Miranda rights and provide (laughs) false confessions, according to new research. Tase it. That's because a taser's 50,000-volt shock temporarily impairs brain function, so taser-exposed participants resemble patients with mild cognitive impairment, says the study. Wow. Even innocent suspects are at greater risk of self-incriminating after being tased. That's not good. They may waive their Miranda rights and make incriminating statements to police without the benefit of counsel and then find those comments difficult to explain once their mental function has recovered later on. The study notes that American police have tased 2.3 million people in the last decade, an average of 904 tasings a day or one every two minutes. Here is a recording of somebody after being tased. This might make sense with what you're talking about. Me, 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 me. True. So I don't know what he meant to say. This is true. So, you know. Well, that makes sense. You, can, you... you can push your product of, of your, your yeah. Matt Towns and Taser, yeah. but there are side effects to pair. Tase it. So if you do use a Taser, you're saying don't believe what people say after you've tased them for a few minutes. Apparently, it makes you a little goofy. Well, that's not good for the, like, the Miranda rights. And, no. Yeah. So you might need to say – you might need to do Miranda rights two or three times. I don't know if they do that, but that could be an option. And just to reiterate some uh, information from yesterday, with with an average of 111.9 million viewers, Super Bowl 50 was the third most watched telecast in American television history. Wow. You watched the third most watched program in the history of this country. Last year's Super Bowl had 114 million viewers. The uh, 2014 had 112 million and only two programs have drawn a larger audience. What what would one what what program has drawn more? Are they they seem to be sporting? Events. I think they're all Super Bowls. Or yeah, or maybe an Olympics. Maybe. Yeah, it, u- it used to be there was an episode of the final of Mash. Oh yeah, the that final was episode. Remember of Mash those old big. days when yeah when they were ending a series. But that was when we had four channels. Yeah, interesting. Or in your case, like one. No, there were three. There were three. There were always three. Well, there was PBS four. Oh, four, yeah. yeah four, and then, then, yeah, it was four. I'd like six because there was an independent channel. Yeah. Yeah, they had the better cartoons. And now there's 400 and only like one station with anything good on. No, there's usually two. Yeah. 
because they're sports. Uh, interesting. Good stuff. Well, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, um, we'll be speaking um, with the author of the book, The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. Elaine Olin will be talking to us about how to keep your personal finances simple and how to manage uh, your bottom line. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show, hoping to help you uh, live longer with more money in your pocket. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend uh, Show. Today, uh, we've got a, a wonderful topic and guest um, with uh, the book titled The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated, and the author is Helene Olson. You know, tax season is coming around the bend again, and are there times that you struggle with your own personal finances? It's easy for personal finance to get lost and disorganized in the wash of business and our, just our everyday life. So our guest today, uh, Helene Olin, is uh, going to give us the solution. She wrote about it in the book called The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And she joins us now from New York. Helene, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, good morning. What a, what a fun uh, idea, really, the idea of being able to get kind of everything we need to know about our finances on an index card. How did it, how did it come to be an index card? Well, this is a great story. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book about, uh, called Pound Foolish um, um, about the personal finance industry and how it had sold us on many things that weren't very good for us as a way around um, dealing with things like income inequality and income stagnation in our unstable workplace, right? Right. And I did this podcast with um, Harold Pollack, a professor at University of Chicago, who you might notice yeah. is my co-author on this yeah, right. card. And at some point during the, um, it was actually a blogcast, sorry about that. At some point during the interview, which was an hour because we had a blast and we just kept going and going, he said something along the lines of, well, truthfully, everything you need to know about personal finance can be put on an index card. And we agreed on that and laughed and moved on. But a number of people who were listening to this um, blogcast were actually kind of fascinated by that. Mm. And they began to write to Harold and say, you should do that. So Harold, without much thinking about it, um, took a card, took an index card from his daughter's knapsack. His daughter was in high school, grabbed a Sharpie, wrote down some notes from our interview, some things he had learned in life, and put it up on the Internet. And then it went viral. Oh, wow. And people started writing, both of us. Yep. And at some point we said, we really need to put all of this in a book. We can't keep answering people one by one by one. This right. a little nuts. So um, we work, we have jobs. Um, <laughs> so we ended up writing a book and um, had a blast doing that too, I should say. Well, and then I'm sure your writing on the card got smaller and smaller because you had so many more ideas. And in the end, you came up with what? How many? Like nine? It's, nine it's principles? Nine. And Yes. And we changed it slightly from the original card. Right. But um, it's still the basic card and the base, same basic advice. Well, um, I mean, that to me, it should be that simple, right? I guess at the core. Right. Well, that was always my point. It's that, you know, this stuff is very easy, and we have this huge industry that has grown up 
that basically sells itself by saying, you know, we have a secret way for you to get around the economy, and we have a way that, you know, if you just turn your money over to us, the stuff's really complicated, and we understand it, and we'll help you prevail. And in fact, um, not only are they often not helping you prevail, in many cases, they're making your position worse. Right. And I guess they like it complicated so you can go to them. You have to go to the experts. Right, because you're too scared to deal with this. It's just too complicated. You don't know the answer, but they do. So true. Oh, it's so true. And so what are some of the principles? Maybe just teach us uh, some of the principles that, that that you think stand out. Well, the first, it starts very basic. You want to build your foundation, right? Right. So your foundation is is to try to save between 10 and 20% of your income. And we realize you're not going to do that overnight. Um, Nobody's going to do that overnight. Um, So we simply say, if you can't do that, and by the way, if you can, start now, okay? But if you can't, you know, even starting small, just get into the habit. And the best way to do that is to make it automatic. Don't you know, don't rely on yourself to look at your check paycheck every week and say, oh, I can put this amount in savings, mm-hmm. that amount in savings. Simply arrange it online. It takes seconds of your time. Um, trust me on that one. So in your online banking, like immediately have it take, once the deposit's made in, have it take 10% out. Right, or what you feel you can afford. Yeah, because right. the second piece is pay down your credit card bills. Um, we're not saying you should pay down all of your debt. Um, you don't need to consider your mortgage at this point, right? Right. But it, your credit card bills and other high-interest debt, should you have, say, payday loans or something like that, is you, you're going to be paying out more in interest on that than any gain you're probably getting from an investment at this point, and certainly from your savings account. Should, should I pay – but you're really saying uh, cr- start creating the savings – even before paying down my debt? Well, the issue is, is you need at least an emergency fund. Yeah, right. 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 Because these things, things come up over and over again, right? There are small emergencies that just happen regularly, like whose car doesn't occasionally, you know, have an accident or get, you know, break down somewhere or, you know, who doesn't um, get sick and need to go to a doctor. Have money put aside for that. That shouldn't come as an emergency, right? Right. And then, of course, greater emergency, lose a job, right? <laughs> have to take, get sick and have to take three weeks off of work instead right. of two days. These are, and your life will be better if you can put money aside for this stuff. There's no question about it. And so once I get my fund, kind of an emergency fund, then go pay off my credit cards, and then, um, and just, I guess I assume, start with the highest interest first, pay off the right. highest interest debt first down. Right. And take a look, good look at your credit cards and see what the highest interest rate is and just put, you know, pay the minimum on everything else, put all your money towards, and, uh, towards that one. And then when that one's paid off, go on to the next lowest interest rate. Um, and trust me, this will save you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars over the course of the time you're doing this. Oh, and um, what? That, what, you know, there's a very popular method out there that says people should pay down their smallest debt first. Yeah, and right. And while I respect that, because it does give some people motivation, it, it in fact just leaves you in a much bigger hole. Um, and ultimately, you need to minimize what you're paying out in, in, in interest rates. Right. And, and so your, yours is more just hit, hit the giant, hit the big interest rates first, knock those down, um, and then... Then I mean, what a joy that would be to see one of your big credit cards finally paid off. I I think the feeling is 
intensely happy, intense, intense happiness. Oh, what a relief. And then um, the other thing that you talk about in your is your rule number three is max out your 401k. Talk to us about that. I think a lot of people are, I don't know, afraid of the stock market today. Well, I mean, th- this is more an issue of, um, first of all, um, we can talk about the fear of the stock market in a second, but first of all, with 401k, this again goes back to the industry, which often tells you simply put the match in their 401k, you know, your employer match, put mm-hmm. the amount up to get that, and then invest in an IRA, which, um, you know, supposedly will offer you greater choices in investment. In fact, you don't need greater choices in investment. <laughs> You need a simple low-fee index fund that comes with low expenses, and that's most likely to be found in your 401k. And this is money that you're not using for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it can grow tax-free so that, um, you know, which is true of an IRA as well. But because of the low fees, it is an immense gain to put your money in there. Yeah, and it seems like it's it's taken out – before you you knew you took it out. Right, and you don't see it, and that's the main thing. It comes straight out of your paycheck. You don't even know it's missing. Um, and as for the stock market, I realize it is not in a great place right now. In fact, I am writing a column about that as I speak. But um, keep in mind, um, you're not investing for tomorrow. You're investing for 10, 20, 30 years out. Right. And the thing I always tell people, because the argument is, is, well, will the stock market perform like it has in the past? And I can't answer that, and neither can anyone else, despite what they tell you. Um, what we know is the stock market has you know, gained about an average of 8% a year after inflation um, over the past several decades. And that if you go off and invest on your own or you try to do better than that, um, you might. But the chances are really, really good you won't. Um, only 1% of us actually have the ability to do that. So as I always like to put it, um, you know, just to get this really negative, right? The stock market can go down by 20%, but your alternative can go down by more. Um, it's not like some automatic thing where you avoid a bad investment and you find a better investment. Right. Chances are incredible you'll find a worse one. <laughs> it's true, though, huh? It, it, it's sad but true. People don't like to contemplate this. That's why um, I get to write this book, right? I contemplate this. That's so true. Um, Okay, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Elaine Olin, who is um, the author of the book um, that is, you know, it's, it's basically the index card. Why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated, folks. It could, the principles can fit on on an index card. Now you might need two hundred and twenty pages of explanation in the end, but um, I think it's a book worth uh, worth looking into. We'll take a break. Come back more with Elaine and learning more of the principles that fit on the business card. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we're speaking with Elaine Olin, who uh, is the author, co-author of the book The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And uh, she's walking us through some fairly basic ideas of um, your own personal finance, like try to save. How about that? 
um, to 20% if you can, pay down your credit card bills. She's now been talking to us about um, some of our stock market choices. Rule number four, um, uh, Helene, is the um, is the principle about what stocks to buy, what stocks not to buy. Talk to us about that. Well, basically, you shouldn't be buying individual stocks at all. Um, we talk about this. We talk about this quite extensively in the book. Um, but very short is again, you, you're not going to have the ability to outguess the market. You know, we all have this idea in our head, we're going to pick the next Google or we're going to pick the next Facebook. Um, Frankly, most of us pick the next AOL or (laughs) the next um, store that goes belly up. Um, We're not really good at this. Um, We're simply not. Um, And by the way, let me make this really clear. When I say we, I mean everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean us individually, um, your uncle or aunt who reads the Wall Street Journal every day, I mean the financial advisor at the local brokerage house. I mean the people running multi-million dollar or billion dollar mutual funds and investment groups. Um, It's human. We just can't do it. Again, the surveys show this time and time again. We're just not going to pull this off. Um, Very few mutual funds or um, even hedge funds ultimately beat their benchmarks. Um, It's simply astonishing that more people don't realize this. And yet we all try. We all try because we're sold on the idea of trying. Right. Um, and in fact, all you need to do, really should do is find a couple of index funds that are properly diversified, and we talk about how to do that in the book, and um, basically put your money in, set it on automatic, and get on with your life. You'll enjoy it a lot more. Because the, the index fund would then have a more balanced portfolio. Well, it's, it, it would be a, no, a couple of different index funds, right? Yeah, right. You know, one with bonds, one with the overall stock market. Um, um, but then you're saying, but then get on with it. Go live. Get on with it. Right. I mean, you know, move on with your life. Um, You're not going to pull this. You're not going to outsmart this. So there's no reason why you should be trying. There's no reason you should be spending your time obsessing about this. So if I'm maxing out my 401k, they're already investing, investing in index funds, aren't they? Well, not necessarily. Okay. Um, You have to go in there and select. Right. Um, and one thing is, and that's really important, because usually what happens is if your 401k is automatic, you'll be simply put in a target date fund based on your age. That's a fund that is designed to replicate a smooth, you know, glide mix of stocks and mm-hmm. bonds towards retirement, right? Um, there's one, there's two things with these. Um, first, um, every target date fund has a different formula. Um, again, there's no magic formula to this, Right. It often involves stock picking. That means it runs up your trading costs, and it eats into the investment principle. Mm. Um, and the, these costs come out year in and year out, no matter how much the stock market gains. And the, the amount you lose to this is simply astonishing. You know, you hear the a person hears the difference between, you know, seven tenths of a percent and two tenths of a percent, and they think, oh, who cares? Yeah, whatever. I'm trying, right? In fact, these differences like have the ability to eat up about a third of your overall gains over the cost of your life. I mean, it, it's a lifetime of investing. It, it's really a mind-boggling number when you look at it. This is why I think we feel like we need an expert, though. Right, and you don't. Yeah, right. Thing. All you need to do is read the index card, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you'll find this out. You don't need an expert. That's not to say, by the way, financial advice is all bad. Um, I should point out. It's good to keep you on a steady path. It's good to 
you know, keep you investing when you're scared. But this is another key point of the index card. You need to make sure you see somebody who has a duty to act in your best interest. Um, that's something called the fiduciary standard. Yeah, explain that. Really, yeah, this is hugely important. Um, most people think when they seek financial advice from anybody, they're like it's like going to a doctor. They have a duty to act in your best interest. You know, they have a financial Hippocra- Hippocratic oath, right? And this is simply not true. Um, in fact, the vast majority have no such interest. Um, and the only way you're going to know this, because they can still charge you for the advice, is, is if you flat out ask if they have a legal duty to act in your best interest. Mm. Um, and in fact, many people suggest putting it in an email or getting them to sign something so that somebody can't just pull a fast one and say something like, when would I never act in your best interest? Right. Which of you might course. notice doesn't answer the question. Yeah. Um, and this way you also have it in writing. Interesting. And I mean, here, let me give you a scenario, Helene. I just had the funeral of my mother-in-law and we have a very trusted, actually almost beloved financial advisor who was there at the funeral and we all know him and love him and his entire staff was there. Um, He was almost more of a family friend, even though he's never really been a family friend. He is the financial advisor. And Yet, you know, you can ask him anything and he does have this fiduciary standard and it it changes the game because, uh, I mean, I have people in my own life that sell insurance and I hear them coming around every quarter or whatever and they almost look for another handout. And I so I I sat there and it didn't dawn on me till I saw this other man and I thought that's the difference of what that's the kind of advisor you want in your life. Somebody that doesn't make it transactionally. But right. that's, that's in the long haul with you. Right. I mean, the thing is that people do need to get used to um, because the, many advisors make it out like this is at no cost to you, right? Right. But that's not true. You know, somebody's paying the bill. And if it's not you, you've got to wonder what's going on. Now, in fact, one of two things are going on. Either the, the financial company selling, marketing the product is paying the bill, which means advice is going to be weighted in their interest, Right. Right. Or second, the money's coming out and you don't even know it. And that happens too. Um, There's no free lunch out there. I mean, there's a reason this cliche became um, a cliche. And it's really important to keep an eye on these things. Oh, there's no free lunch. Darn it. Um, Yeah, but again, as the human nature in us, we we try to keep looking for the free lunch. The big deal, the the big hit. And it sounds more like you're saying, just chip away at it. Just right. keep chipping. Exactly. I mean, when I when I wrote Pound Foolish, I interviewed um, one of the big marketing people, and he told me uh, he said everybody wants a free lunch. He said I stayed at this big hotel, um, you know, on the on the luxury floor, you know, the penthouse, you know, special, you know, the VIP floor, and it was all CEOs, and they put out a free breakfast, and it was a mob scene. <laughs> he said everybody wants a freebie, you know. And right. that's, By the way, so. Another bit of advice: You get something in the mail that says, "Come to a, you know, come here a financial presentation at your local favorite restaurant." Yeah, skip it. Don't do it. Okay, you're Don't going to be go sold there. something. You're going to be sold something, and chances are, ninety nine point nine percent, this is something that's not in your best interest. Huh? That's great. That's great advice. Uh, you just made a lot of people mad, but that's great advice. Um, the the rule number eight that you talk about insurance. Make sure you're protected. What insurance do we need? What's too much? 
Okay. First and most important, um, you need health care. You need um, housing insurance. You need auto insurance. What's too much is with, um, you know, auto and housing, you don't need a $500 deductible, right? This is not something you're using every day. Um, you know, at minimum, you know, it, with 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 an auto, you know, a thousand dollars. With a house, it really depends on your budget and the value of your house. I mean, I that that can be my number would be so high because I'm based in New York. You guys would laugh. Right. If you heard it. So, yeah. um, you know, we pay what you pay for a four bedroom house for a closet. I know. Um, it's so sad. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that's insurance you don't use, but you need it. You know. Things do happen, and that's really it's important to be protected. And I know health insurance is, you know, ridiculously expensive. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but if somebody gets ill, you could be out a lot of money right. really, really fast. I mean, there is no way to sign up for insurance on the spot if you're in a car accident, say. There just isn't. Um, even with Obamacare, right? Even so with Obamacare. Everybody okay. get that in your head. Yeah, don't, get, don't have that idea, right? You get hit, you're crossing the street and something happens. No, it doesn't work that way. You'll be out twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 before you, you, know, you even wake up. Oh, yeah. Is, so, is, um, what, what amount of life insurance should I carry? Is that based on my income? What is that based on? both um, income and what your responsibilities are. If you're 60 years old and your children are grown up and you're not going to be working in five years, you might not need much at all, right? Right, right. And we tell people term, not anything that's an investment scheme. Again, too many, um, too many fees coming out. We go into that much more in the book. Mm. And, um, and then, so in the book too, you'll be able to help us define maybe how much is enough. Right. Okay. And, you know, the other thing we talk about is um, the other insurance that people often don't like to hear about. Right. And that's the government. Yeah. Um, and we're all reliant on that. So, you know, our last rule is that you should support the social welfare system, the, the social safety net. You know, there's this thing where most of us think, oh, I never take money from the government. What is this? Well, in fact, when surveyors go out there and ask, actually 95% of us at some point in our lives take money. Right. Um, and it's everything from Social Security to Medicare to unemployment insurance to mortgage deductions. This is all, you know, government um, scaffolding around your life. Um, and we want people to be aware of that. Your financial life as you know it is actually not possible without that scaffolding because there is simply no way for you to save up enough money to replace Social Security or the vast majority of us. Right. And the same for Medicare. Um, and it's really funny because we all have this way of thinking somehow these aren't government programs, right? It's the infamous sign from a few years ago, get, get the government's hands off my Medicare. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Like, who on, where on earth did they think it was coming from? <laughs> well, and um, a lot of people are worried, Helene, that it's not going to be around for them. Okay, I, okay, this right. is something I talk about a lot. Um, it's not much in the in the index card, but that's actually simply not true. Yeah, this is one of the greatest myths out there. Social Security, very very short. Social Security is not going bankrupt. At current rates, it will only be able to replace seventy five percent of income in the two thousand thirties. But the increases that would be needed to um, 
to make it whole are, for the vast majority of us, ridiculously small, talking like, you know, less than $100 a year if it was done immediately. And the other thing that would be huge that most people do not realize is um, Social Security stops taxing, taking, you know, money out of your income for it at 118500 That's called the payroll tax cap. Um, if they simply eliminated the payroll tax cap, about 85% of the deficit would vanish tomorrow. Wow. Um, people simply have no idea. And the reason they have no idea is because the interests that don't want that money taxed have a lot more voice in Washington and in the public discourse than in people earning fifty, sixty thousand dollars no, exactly. a year. Right. Um, and when people hear this, they are simply astonished. Um, did you know that? No, no, I'd never heard that. Well, I mean, in a way, think about because those people that are making above one hundred and eighteen thousand are still going to draw on their social security. I mean, right. many of them, unless laws are changed. So. And there's no reason for laws to be. That's right. Why not just allow it? Yeah, allow it to just keep charging above 118,000. Right. And yeah, and it would totally make sense. And it's simply astonishing to me that people do not realize this. Well, Um, I mean, I guess that's it. Because if you start all that money that they want those taxes, that's the Wall Street effect, isn't it? That's why everyone's talking about Wall Street. Right. And. it's simply astonishing. It is simply astonishing that more people do not know this. Um, hmm. And I, I tend to not reflexively blame media um, as being a part of media. I'm a columnist at Slate, as right. you probably know. But in this case, I really blame the media for this. This should be, whenever there's a conversation about Social Security, this should be the first thing set. Yeah. And, um, and it never even comes up. Well, especially in this election. I mean, is Bur- this seems like what Bernie Sanders would be talking about. Well, he is talking about it. Does he bring it up? Um, Bernie Sanders is talking about it. Um, And Hillary Clinton seems to have indicated she supports it as well, though it's a little bit murkier there. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if you want to know why Donald Trump is doing so well on the Republican side, I can give you a pretty good hint. Did he talk Um, about this? He is not talking about the payroll tax cap, but he is the only one of the candidates who has specifically said he will not cut back Social Security from where it is right now. The rest of them are talking about, you know, cutting the benefits or raising the retirement age, which is one of those things that sounds like a great idea until you recognize that age discrimination is immense and that most people leave the workforce not because they want to, but because they either get ill, a family member gets ill, or they get laid off and they can't find another job. Right. Um, So, yes, we're all living longer, but we're not all living longer in better health and we're not living longer... Um, with jobs available to us. And um, the third thing is people most reliant on Social Security are actually not living as much longer as the people who need it less. Um, Mm. If you have a really nice, high-paying, white-collar desk job, um, like you or me, um, our outlook's pretty good. But if you're a manual laborer, your outlook is not so great. Oh, so true. And those those are the people who will suffer the most, who need Social Security the most and will suffer the most from the age being raised. I mean, it really is. It's it's interesting. You bring it up as like your ninth point. It's, but it's it is part of our financial planning, and it needs to be f- part of our. It's also part of our giving, right? I mean, you're. It, it's it's huge. I mean, the majority of elderly people right now, and we're talking about people who we all think of as prosperous, right? Right. Would be living in very straitened circumstances without Social Security. Um, it. it they literally would, um, and ditto Medicare. People really need to have this banged over their head. Um, 
And I think it's very easy to forget because most of us don't get a Social Security check where most of us are not over right. 65, right? Yeah. Well, and if people could trust government to manage it and protect it. Well, we can. They I mean, have so far. And, you know, they've protected it a heck of a lot better than our investments on Wall Street have been protected. Think of it that no, way. That's totally true, huh? <laughs> Darn Wall Street again. Back to the Wall Street. Well, we appreciate you, um, Helene. That's, I think it's an, a very uh, – I think it's a well-thought-out book. The Index Card's the name of the book, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. You can find it at all the bookstores. And Helene Olin, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me on. You bet. Uh, again, you can go to Helene's um, website, uh, HeleneOlin.com, and, and find out more about her, her book, uh, Pound Foolish which was the first book she wrote. She's she's appears everywhere in the New York Times, Salon, Slate, you name it, the Atlantic. She's been in all the big all the big uh, uh, media sources. So she's a great resource resource. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend show. Stick with us, folks. We're going to make you rich one way or another. This is the Matt Townsend show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How are you doing in your finances? It's a tough thing because you don't you don't know what you don't know. And then all of a sudden, some salesman comes and talks to you and like, well, you know, you need to have this kind of insurance and this kind of insurance. and Or how about all of these people that live in a flood zone and they don't even have flood insurance or earthquake? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to know what you're supposed to do. Anyway, uh, let's just go to another subject, because if you think you have it bad, um, (laughs) what do you do if you're the Ohio Speaker of the House and your pastor that's offering the invocation, the prayer, to get the entire Ohio House of Representatives session underway, what if he just keeps going and going and going? going in his prayer. He just keeps offering and praying and praying. Well, things got awkward at the start of Tuesday's session of Ohio House of Representatives after the opening prayer by Pastor B.J. Van Amen went past the five-minute mark. House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger took advantage of a long pause and said, Amen, and ended the prayer before it was over. He said, I didn't mean to be rude and I feel terrible. He said in an interview with the Columbus Dispatch, when I thought it was enough, I I didn't really know how best to do it. So I just said, amen. (laughs) And away we go. And at one point during the prayer, Rosenberger lifts his head and just opens his eyes. He said, after the pastor talks about King Solomon and David, the speaker saw his opportunity. (laughs) Um, Anyway, since the microphones on the desks of the House members were open mics, one female member could be heard saying, man, that was a sermon. So how do you how do you end a prayer? Well, you just say amen, even if the pastor's not done delivering it. Oh, it's funny. But there again, they're trying to open it up. Uh, you know, allow a prayer to be offered. So remember that if you're going to offer a prayer for to open legislate the the legislative session, I'd I'd, I'd make it a short one. I have another way to end it. How? 
tase it. That would end it. Thank you, Pastor. Um, thank you, Pastor. Well done. <laughs> that, that is one way to do it. Again, uh, we're not having a lot of success on this fundraising effort. We're t- uh, ben and I have been trying to raise some money on the um, on a beja- bedu- bedazzled and bejeweled um, taser series, taser line. Most for- of our support comes from the the fund the helpers over like sixty five. Yeah, 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 contributors over sixty five. The senior, yeah. And we appreciate it. It's just you know, it's not catching on like we thought it would. Yeah, we wanted it to be a hip new. Yeah. Tool. Have a hip taser. Anyway, folks, we'll take a break. That's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back next hour. We'll be talking parenting. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Hour number three of the show. Remember, you can go back. And get on iTunes or get on your Android podcast device. Really, I'd go to BYU Radio app. And you could download any of our past shows. Just get the app and then you can enter in any topic. Bada boom, bada bing. You can get any of our shows. Just enter in any topic. We've pretty much covered everything. Everything. Really? Yeah. Everything. So we just shut it down? I mean, we're done, right? Well, we could cover them twice. Okay. We'll go 650 back. shows we've done. That's crazy. Get a life. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. Get a life. Get a life. Hey, um, you know, remember a couple of days ago you talked about the North Korean satellite? Yes. They, in all their technology. And they, lo- they peeked in at the Super Bowl an hour after the game ended. Yeah. They just shot it right up there, and it was circling the globe. Well, apparently, it's it's now a little unsteady. It's tumbling. And it's tumbling. Yeah. And that's a tumbling satellite. And as it tumbles, pieces break off and just fall to Mother Earth. Yeah. It's going to land on somebody. So the South Koreans have been kind of following this, you know, for everybody to make sure – we're all safe, but pieces have been pulled from the south, the sea southwest of Jeju Island. Shortly after Pyongyang announced it had successfully launched the Earth observation satellite, so it was already losing pieces by the time it was launched. So now there's just more junk in space, is what you're saying? Well, actually, apparently the junk's now in the ocean. It's kind of sad because it seems like if you're going to be evaluating Earth. I don't know. You'd need your satellite pieces to be on the satellite. True. Like when a lens flies off. Yeah. Well, it's tumbling, so it's not like they can get a clear picture of anything. Don't you hate it when you're tumbling? It kind of needs to be a a stable platform if you want to use. But I mean, it was a good try. 
A for effort. Yeah, sure. I mean, you could either launch stuff into space or feed your people, whichever way you want to go with it. Well, you hope <laughs> you hope that he also had a good view of the Super Bowl for a bit. Just, I mean, Maybe, for a minute. Unless it was tumbling. Yeah. Then they Now, the International Space Station, they they put out a photograph of the uh, Super Bowl. They did? Yeah. What did it look like? Have you been on Google Earth before? Yeah. Yeah, like that. Could you see Beyonce's? No. Okay. It's it's like Google Earth. You zoom in and, hey, there's a football stadium. Hey, there it is. Okay, moving on. That's cool. But, yeah. so the, Could you see Could you see whether it was a pass or not a pass in the first? No. You, you saw a football stadium in the surrounding neighborhoods. Of kind of boring. Business parks and warehouses. The cool yes, thing is, though, you're seeing there. it from the space station. I mean, how fun would that be to watch yeah, the that, Super Bowl? That's kind of the approach from but space. You get the same thing if you just go to Google Maps and hit satellite. And well, and then all of a sudden you hear this clankety clankety clank of a satellite passing you from that, North that, Korea. That could be a, an issue. Hey, what was that? Oh, that's just the North Korean satellite tumbling and breaking apart. Not a big deal. Hey, today, by the way, uh, extraterrestrial culture day. Hmm. Which is why it's important that we report on the satellites. They're more open to, uh, I guess, kidnappings, um, abductions. Probings. Probings, experimentation, inserting of tracking devices in the base of the neck or behind the ear. I watched the X-Files yesterday. Yeah, you, yeah. I'm re-watching the entire series. Well, you act like you know that this happens. They do it. It's true. The whole whole series of the X-Files is true. Well, yeah, I would bet bucks if we were betting people. I would put money on the fact that some of the candidates in New Hampshire today are extraterrestrials. There was a plot on, was it The Simpsons? Back when Bob Dole and, uh, who did Bob Dole run against? George Bush? No. Bob Um, Dole and Bill Clinton. Yeah. When they were running and the the plot line, basically, I'm going to spoil this. Now it's from forever ago. But it came down that both candidates were actually aliens. And it didn't matter who won. It just mattered that one of them was the victor so that they could enslave the population of the planet. Go! And that's really probably what's happening. Yeah. There's an alien invasion going on and we're too busy listening to candidates fight each other to realize that we've already lost. That we're about, yeah. Or that you're about to be abducted. That too. See, and this is all a part of embracing Alien Culture Day. <laughs> if you've been to the Roswell Museum, uh, you understand there's a lot of culture yeah. in the extraterrestrial world. <laughs> I've been there. It's fantastic. The people, they're – yeah. But there's some stuff we don't know about that's going on. Right. It's a cover-up. It's a cover-up. Hey – um, uh, what do you think about Santa? I, what do you n- think nice he does? Guy. What do you think he does now? Lay off on the sweets a little bit. Yeah, but like it's you know he's done. He's had his big day, right? Taking that long nap. He's tired. Uh, I don't, uh, he probably is taking a nap. But apparently, Santa Claus was arrested. No, this, this wouldn't be the Santa no, Claus. No, this is a man this legally a, named Santa Claus. A guy named Santa Claus. It's different. Well, legally. Yeah. Yeah. How many Santa Clauses are there? Well, there's the one in the sleigh, and then there's this, there's the this, real one. this guy driving around, what, Idaho? Is that where yeah. he lives? Yeah. Legally. So apparently Santa comes down from the North Pole, hangs out in I- Idaho. 
who, who wouldn't? He was spotted after driving the wrong way down a local road. First sign of trouble. By the way, guess how old Santa is? 60s? 67, mm. yeah. And he was stopped by police in Post Falls. He said he was confused as he was not from the area. Duh. He's unfamiliar with the local streets. I'm not from here. If I were in my reindeer, this wouldn't be a problem. I usually just let them drive. But you know what? The police reported that they could smell alcohol coming from the car. No way. Yeah. Way. Totally shocked. And Claus, I mean, why isn't he in a sleigh? Hello. Could have gotten away with it. Was it like a tricked out red Cadillac or something? I doubt it. Okay. I doubt it. It's probably like a Corolla. Yeah. It's always kind of disappointing Rusty. when you see him out in the wild. Claus admitted that he had spent the afternoon drinking. It's like... Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas! Ho, 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 ho. It's like see, when I was in uh, elementary and you'd see your teacher just at the store. Oh, isn't that weird? You're like, whoa, and you go whoa. hide. Oh, she's wearing pants. Yeah, you're out of context. <laughs> That's what this is. Yeah, except was your teacher drunk? No. What, I don't get the context. No, just just, the, just the, Santa Claus situation. is just not in uniform yeah. with the reindeer in the sleigh, and he's just hanging out in Idaho. Yeah, just, well, I mean, imagine, yeah, imagine Claus, like, just with some, you know, some cargo shorts. Or do you think he wears overalls? I could see him wearing overalls, yeah. Big you know, boots. He'll still wear boots. He's a boot guy. I can't see Santa in flip-flops. No. Unless he's on vacation. Well, apparently he was on vacation, oh. and he uh, to Idaho. Uh huh. Sure. And he he uh-huh. had lost his balance a little bit try, while they were trying to do the sobriety test. So Santa may he is a little top heavy. Yeah. Oh yeah. With the belly and all. Oh yeah. I don't know. I feel bad for him. It's called his summer weight. <laughs> don't you feel bad? Like it's sad. I mean, it's just it's kind of the fall of a star. He'll be all right. He'll get his act together. We're a very forgiving culture, Absolutely. especially when you hand out free gifts. Mm. Nothing better than free gifts. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the rest of the world we need to worry about? There is. Thanks, Matt. Donald Trump has captured a wide lead in the New Hampshire ahead of today's primary, where voting begins as early as midnight. We talked about that this morning. A couple cities that already voted. Yeah. They like nine people in them, but, you know, whatever. According to a University of Massachusetts poll released Monday, Trump holds the support of 34% of likely Republican voters in the Granite State, followed by Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz with 13% or thirteen percent apiece. As for the Democrats, Bernie Sanders, 56-40 to 40 over Hillary Clinton. However, New Hampshire is famously a late-breaking state with many undecided voters, and polls are typically subject to scrutiny. So with the undecideds, or the unaffiliated, that's going to be where yeah. the issue comes up, where the polls don't And they can vote for match. either side. There's no rules. Tricky, tricky. Registered Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike say they've been getting into envelopes from the Cruz campaign that read, check enclosed. Yeah, that's been trickery. That's weird. The Huffington Post reports, but lo and behold, the mail is actually asking people for money, not giving it to them. There's technically a check inside, but it's a fake one that Cruz wrote himself. So again, Cruz doing some. Wait till people try to cash that. Male shenanigans. Yeah. <clears throat> like he's, he did in Iowa. Yeah. 
He's going to get in trouble. Before Hillary Clinton was railing on big banks in a race for the Democratic presidential nomination against notorious anti-Wall Street candidate Senator Bernie Sanders, she was getting paid by the big banks to give talks. Now those private talks are threatening to make a second and very public appearance as the push grows for Clinton to release transcripts, while some argue that the remarks are nothing but boilerplate happy talk that highly paid speakers generally offer to their hosts, you know, like what, what you deliver in the Abs- speeches you give. Absolutely. Just happy talk. Others worry that Clinton's speech, if released, could easily be taken out of context by Sanders, who has already been slamming her for her Wall Street connections. Well, and she's saying that they gave her those fees, but some are arguing that, no, 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 you pay, she demanded certain prices. You have certain to. prices. And what and they said what she spoke of is she congratulated the Goldman Sachs is a couple of one of the organizations she spoke to and she congratulated them a couple times on all of their hard work during the you know the recession that happened right. because people like organizations like Goldman Sachs had some financial dealings that tanked the economy. Right. She never she never spoke of that, never talked of that. She praised them for all their hard work. Hmm. So that could come back to uh, to get her if that stuff gets made made public, which apparently will. Oh yeah. The Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice are investigating a potential breach that may have exposed the personnel information of thousands of DHS and FBI employees. A government spokesman said on Monday, Motherboard, a tech website, reports that a hacker whose identity it did not reveal intended to make the information of 9,000 Homeland Security agents and 20,000 FBI agents widely available on the Internet. Oh, wow. Yay. You, More you, hacks. You may not want to rattle the cage of the FBI. No. But, you know, someone may try. Hmm. It may not be come as a huge surprise that New York ranks as the number one in a list of the most talkative states. But any guesses on who's the least talkative? The least talkative states? The state? least talkative states. I would say Vermont. No. Montana. Mm, no. Wyoming. I'm looking at the list. No. Wow. Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Really? Kind of the center of the... This according to an analytics firm who looked at 4 million phone calls between consumers and businesses from 2013 to 2015. And uh, of those, they always say this call may be recorded. Yeah. And then they listen to see how much was said in the phone call. Okay. F- and then where they're oh, from yeah. to find out who's the most so talkative. the least talkative, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, Kansas. And Oklahoma, New York, California, New Jersey, Nevada, and Maryland. Wow. Slowest talkers? Um, I don't know. Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Alabama, and North Carolina. The South talk the South. a little slower. A little slower. It's that drawl. I like it. Yeah, it's interesting. Wow. Interesting. Talkative. Most patient. Most patient. Utah. No. Where? Minnesota, Illinois, Florida, Colorado, and Louisiana. Oh, cool. People that are just like, yeah, go ahead. Whatever. Do what you got to do. I got all day. Yeah. Hmm. I'm, I'm a little impatient on those types of phone calls. I am, too. Let's That's why I don't done. answer them. Let's move along. Next. Hey, uh, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, our bomb mom will be here, Julie K. Nelson, from uh, the website A Spoonful of Parenting. She'll be joining us talking about how to show love to your child through encouragement, how to encourage your children and, uh, you know, show forth a little bit of love. Stick with us, folks. Helping you live longer and love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The bomb mom is in the house. The child whisperer, we call her, Julie K. Nelson from a spoonful of parenting.com. She's here to teach us uh, how to get, because it's Valentine's week, mm-hmm. how to get love and into your kids, how to show them you love them. Yeah, we uh, don't always recognize that what we do to show love may not be the best way of showing love. Right. And we enable kids or we, you know, just recognize things that shouldn't maybe be reinforced the best behavior. And so we want to show the true love that really builds character and encourages kids to be the best they can be. Well, yeah. And it's interesting that we're going because we would think that Valentine's and love would be about our spouse. Except every parent this week is putting together a Valentine's Day box. <laughs> yes. Do you remember those? Yes, I do. I love those. And those little cards with right. the suckers on them or whatever. Yeah, they're getting more and more elaborate, I'm telling you. I'm so glad my kids are out of the elementary school years because it just got too much. Well, what if you're not a creative person? Gosh. Then you're just a bad mom. Yeah, you are. You can't, you're making little airplanes out of the candy <laughs> and the gum wrapper. Oh, my gosh. Come I was, on. I was like, hey, just give them one of those little cards. That's that's good. Don't you remember just a card with yeah. like something glued to it? Even that was a little bit too much for me sometimes. Yeah. Tape it. Just tape it. You can tape it. Oh. Tape a Twix. Hey, um, so we're going to spell the acronym LOVE. Mm-hmm. Four steps to love our kids. Yeah, these are four um, strategies, parents, that you might want to reconsider that it's not about show- giving them um, things um, or doing things for them all the time. Sometimes building love means I'm empowering you. Yeah. Um, and I'm building self-esteem in you. So how do we cool. how do we encourage? Let's start with the L. L. L stands for lasting characteristics. Um, one thing that children really do have a hard time with is that they're in this competitive world, and there's you know all of the stuff going on where they're always being evaluated by other people, yeah. and, by, and then by themselves. You know, I'm not as cute, or I'm not as fast, or I'm not as smart. Oh, especially those young, like the yeah. teen, early teens. Exactly. And so you know, there only can be one winner. You know, one t- person that's top of the class, one first place trophy. And the blue ribbon will soon be put in a box, but the character that's built along the way is the lasting characteristic, and it can be earned by anyone, yeah. not just the winners. And so to show love for your kids, not just on Valentine's Day, but always, parents, consider that you want to emphasize the characteristics that they're building while they're achieving a goal, because they may not be the best at that thing. But for example, my, one of my kids played tennis in high school, and my my first daughter, um, she played, and she was on a doubles team for her first year. Yeah. And she was paired with an older girl, and they didn't really know much as far as tennis. They were kind of starting out, and they lost, like, every game. <laughs> and it was discouraging because we'd go and cheer for them, and we're like, yeah, I've lost again. Yeah, I've lost again. But we'd talk about what are you learning along the way, how to play with the partner, how to read each other's right. signals. Right, And when someone makes a good shot, you cheer for them. Um, you stay with the team and cheer with the other, the other people that are playing afterwards and right. before you. You don't just play your thing and then go home. But those that team effort. And so they, they learn things that were life skills that you need for the rest of your life. They're lasting characteristics that they'll use forever. I mean, yeah. whether or not they won a game or not didn't matter as long as they're building those characteristics. Well, let me tell you, the last game of the season, like they played like, what, eight, ten games? They finally won. 
the last game of the season because they had been working as a team yeah. and getting better and better. And by that, you you should have seen the cheers that came from those two girls because they'd finally achieved something. But we it, did it. But it was it was lasting characteristics that got them there. They not giving up the determination. Oh yeah, the teamwork, and that's what mattered. And that's what she has today. She's a grown woman now, and she has those things. You know, and so that's you wonder sometimes if any of these star athletes know how to lose mm-hmm. because some of them throw a fit or. And you, see, I see it just in little league. Their parents are throwing fits. Yeah, or quarterbacks that walk out of press conference after losing the, you know, the Super yeah. Bowl. Um, yeah. The thing is, is that we want to teach them how to have good character, no matter what's going on, lose or win. So here's some things you might say: Look at the effort you put into making that airplane model. You sure are a determined young man. You never gave up even when it broke apart. Mm. So not giving up, being determined, effort, that's what I'm emphasizing this lasting characteristics. Um, I've noticed all the friends you have made on the track team. Your running times have improved, but you're also so friendly and positive. You always stayed after and cheered everyone after a long run. Mm, that's cool. So emphasize character. Folks, and that's what you how you show love because that kids. that'll last, and then that'll transcend any sport. You mm-hmm. can use that in everything you do. Absolutely, these are life skills, and you're noticing your child for their worth rather than the the whatever the thing they they've earned. Yeah, right. Which we don't want to be an earned society um, because not everyone can you know be the achiever in everything. Right. And so what if you have a child who just does their very best, and then you're recognizing those, and, and anyone anyone can build these characteristics. You know, oh, right. so so basically, the the what we're saying here is, under lasting characteristics, I love you enough to recognize all the worth that is in you. Yeah, that's what e- we're saying. So the worth versus the works. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we always want to focus on the outcome, that's the right. win, mm-hmm. the touchdown. Yeah. But in reality, yeah, the worth is are all of these other characteristics. That's yeah. huge. So okay. that's the L. That's the L. The O is offering support if needed. Um, parents t- t- tend to go overboard one way or the others. I think yeah. much of what children can learn from themselves for themselves is to be done by themselves. Um, we shouldn't be rescuers unless in rare circumstances. But we don't want to do everything for them because we feel like some parents think if I just show love, I'll just do it for them, like the right. the project, the science fair project, or the homework, so that they don't sit there and cry at the table because I can't do it. But they do everything. But what you're telling them is you're enabling them. You can't do this, so I have to do it for you. You're not good enough. Right. And so by being the helicopter parent who swoops in and, and saves the day all the time, you're creating dependent, underconfident children. And um, the message is, is you can't, you're not able to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's not how we show love. We also don't show love by just standing back and saying, you do it all. I, you, you know, I, I won't help you because you have to do this. Yeah, abandoning. Yeah. So you know, if you do nothing for a child, then you're going to create overwhelmed kids, discouraged, anxious kids. So we want to kind of find somewhere in between. And I like this analogy that um, I'm not sure if you know Vygotsky. Um, he's a, a great theorist, yep. as well as Piaget. They have this thing called scaffolding. If you think about a building that um, you're going to do window washing or you're going to build a building, you, you create that scaffolding. Right. And so what you want to do is to see, like, the building that the child wants to create that they want to, you know, build is their knowledge of something or their skills of something. Right. And so you want to be that platform that they stand on to create that thing. Now, you're not doing it for them. They're just holding them up. And then you, as you see that they need a little help, you put a little more scaffolding higher and higher. Once they've achieved that goal, they've, they've created that skill, whether it's learning how to do algebra, some, you know, you're there coaching them along the way right. but not doing it for them. And then once they get more proficient at it, you take the scaffolding away and the house is built. 
they don't need you anymore. And so you're there to support, you're there to encourage, but you're not doing it for them, but you scaffold. And you, you could just do that by asking questions, right? Like you could just mm-hmm. – you, you or plan with them. Help mm-hmm. them understand mm-hmm. – like and they may not – have you thought about this? Yes. Have you thought about what would happen if this – Took place. And I think t- uh, breaking things down into bite-sized chunks is something kids have a hard time with. Right. At least my kids, they get overwhelmed at a big task, even homework. Well, let's just do problem one and let's see how this works rather than seeing the whole – I've got to mm-hmm. do 25 problems in algebra. And so you just do number one. Let's see how this – or let's just do the odds together and you do the evens after that. You know, so that you're kind of creating that scaffolding yeah. but then you take it away when, and then you're saying – I, I have confidence that you can do this now, but I'm here. Yeah. You need me. I like the scaffolding idea too because if it falls apart, it, the whole thing doesn't collapse. It only falls apart to the scaffolding. Yeah, and you have to be sensitive to how high to build that scaffold, mm-hmm. how much they need your help. Um, it's the zone of proximal development is what Vygotsky calls it. And so I need to be in the zone to know when they need me and when to step back so that I'm at the yeah. maximum ability to um, help them in the most challenging time of their lives. But I don't do it for them. I don't do nothing. Right. So I'm right there in the middle. So what the what the message you're sending here is is that I love you enough to help you to become successful on your own. Mm. But I I'm love th- that. but I'm there I'm there along the way. Well and, and, and you and you also might sometimes know it's gonna fail mm-hmm. and they might be unwilling to hear it and you just let it fail. Yeah. Just let it fail. I mean failure's great. Yeah. It's one of the best teachers. It is. And then if they're able after they've you know, gotten over the emotional <laughs> trauma of it. Say, what did you learn from that? Yeah. And that's part of scaffolding too, is mm. help them to process and learn from their mistakes. And these are all ways to show love, mm-hmm. right? Right. Just, you know, offering support, being there to empower, mm-hmm. also knowing when to just let it go Yeah. and stay out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll take a break. More with our bomb mom, Julie K. Nelson from a spoonful of parenting.com. Go to her website. You can look at her parenting books there. Um, one of the books is Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, folks. 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. Interesting stuff. More with Julie K. Nelson when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the studio with us is Julie Nelson. Uh, Julie is on faculty at Utah Valley University. She is an expert in families. She teaches marriage classes, communication classes, family, parenting classes. And she's the author of two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, which you can get on her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Today she's walking us through four lessons mm-hmm. of Love, bringing love to your kids. Basically, so far we've learned the L stands for lasting characteristics, focus on the lasting things. The O stands for offering support when needed, if needed. And now to the V. What do we do to love with the V? We're so excited about this, right? Hanging on the edges of our seats. What is V for? V, uh, valuing the effort. Uh, valuing the effort. That's a big one because, we, like you said before, we often just wait for the results 
yeah. and not for the effort that was put into it. So be there for the process, parents. This takes more time, but this is where we show the love. Not just wait on the finish line for the when they cross the goal line, but we all know that when someone's running a race, you build up those pit stops along the way, the watering holes. So you can say, you're doing it. You're doing great. Keep going and give them some water and some support. Those little signs, go, yeah. the signs that Cheer say. Cheer them along. Yeah. So what if you don't effort? see any effort? And it's not because you're <laughs> negative because you really don't see effort. What do you do to motivate the effort? I mean, we try to scare our kids, intimidate them, all wrong ways. But what do you do? Well, you find what is motivating for them. Yeah. And then and then make that their goal. And then it's kind of like, well, you know what? I don't love all the time cleaning the kitchen. In fact, I hardly ever do. Yeah. But I say, what's going to be the end goal? Well, then I can have free time to go do this thing. Right. And so we just get through it. Like my mom always said, you know, if you got to if you got to kiss the frog, just kiss it quick and then move on. Yeah. But the longer you stare at the frog, the uglier it gets. True. And so you just kiss it and get on with it. So you say, well, what will happen next after you get this thing done? Then you'll have free time to go play with your friends. Or true. And so they may not like to do the thing. But they earn something by doing it. And then that's just how life is. You know? just, just kiss the frog. I don't know why we have to do that, but <laughs> you just kiss it. Get it over Get with. Get it over with. Yeah. Yeah. I like so that. So value the effort. Um, let me read this. This is really good from this um, from this uh, um, psychologist. When parents wait for their children uh, until their children have achieved a desired outcome before noticing their effort, they miss out on the opportunity to motivate them as they are working toward their objective. To reach an established goal requires ability and effort, and excellence develops along many steps. So encouragement is thus more valuable along the way than it is after the child has already attained the success. A statement such as, look at the progress you've made in putting together that model, focuses on the process rather than the outcome, and encourages children to persevere in the face of challenge. So this is what mm, we want. Right. Again, those characteristics, right? Even when a ch- children have achieved the goal, it's more encouraging for them when the parents focus on the process that led to the realization of that objective rather than only the outcome. In this situation, an encouraging statement which focuses on the process, such as you really worked hard on that science project, your hard work paid off, is better than just the praise, which is just focus on the outcome, like good job, okay? Yeah. So good job is not giving them the feedback that they need to show what it took to get along, to get there, the effort along the way. And, and if you point it out, then that starts to kind of pay off effort, right? Mm-hmm. So you want it, you want the effort to shine because the effort's going to be there, needs to be there no matter what, not just the outcome. Yeah, and I can try harder. I mean, I, I mean I've seen my kids do this. Triple the effort to get into, um, like, let's say they're in a chemistry class and they just are not really uh, really all that. They're bad. not getting it, yeah. They're not gifted in, in chemistry. But they put all the effort there is. And I can see them. And I'm encouraging them along the way, giving them the pit stops along the way. And they get a B. Great. Wow, wow. And the person Nailed that's it. gifted in, in chemistry but doesn't put in the effort and gets the A, do you want to reward that by saying good job? Because right. what I'm saying is to the person who's gifted, you don't have to put any effort into this. Therefore, no discipline, no hard work. And what's that going to pay off in life? No. And so I want to not reward the person by saying, um, for example, if a child came to me and showed me a paper with an A on it, and I say, oh, good job, you got an A. But what if they cheated to get that A? Right. Or what if they procrastinate until the night before? I'm, I'm rewarding or praising bad effort and cheating. That's right. So I want to focus on the effort, the honest effort that was given along the way. That will in the end. So if you think about the characteristics you've talked about so far and um, the effort, those two things in and of themselves will create 
better results. Yeah, and you're showing love, true love to your kids by doing this, not by, wow, I want you to please me by giving me the A every time because yeah. that's not real love. Real love is recognizing the, the the effort that was given along the way. The child tried their very best. And you'll even say, I'll take a B. Mm-hmm. I'll take a C in the hardest thing you've ever done if you've given it your all. Yeah, and that's what real love is, is that's recognizing. Cool. So what we're saying on this one is I love you enough to take the time to notice that you're doing your very best. Mm. Parents who don't love their kids as well, just wait for the results, wait for the report card and say, okay, I expect all A's. And then they don't know what, how that child get those A's. And then we're encouraging this culture of cheating or whatever it might be if the child is lazy um, and they're not really putting the effort into it. And so um, showing that I noticed you along the way really shows the love. That's huge. Okay. okay. Value one. the effort. E, what does E stand for? Evaluate your, evaluating their self. Okay. So we got valuing the effort for V, and E is evaluating themselves. Hmm. If we just praise a child, then we're doing a value statement or value judgment. Sorry, a judgment. In other words, I would say, like for the example before, oh, you got such good grades. I'm so proud of you. Look at the A. That's focusing on my feelings. I. I'm saying, uh, I believe you got good grades. I'm so proud of you. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's, that's me that's evaluating me. you. Yeah, that's my feelings. I'm focusing on myself. If I do evaluating themselves, then I'm encouraging them for self-reflection. And that's where I show the love to my child. How do you feel about those? Wow. Yeah. You must be so proud. And then the, the, the self-esteem just swells inside the child when I turn it back on them. Not focus on me, but focus on the child. So look at your grades. How do you feel? How do you feel about that? What was – tell me about – how you know, what about this project you did? Tell me more about this. And this becomes they, – then they can become aware, right? Then they're aware of what they feel. Yeah, exactly. And, and the effort it took them along the way. Look at this insect collection that you've done. I know – wow. Remember this beetle? Tell me about where you got this one. That was a hard one. Tell me about yeah. – so you're, they're reflecting themselves and evaluating their effort. Um, so let's do a little um, – little exercise here, Matt, because you're so good at this stuff. Okay, well, so we're going to change it from a praise, parent focus, to a child, the self-evaluation. So you're not going to say anymore, well, not that praise is bad. I don't want to say that. We want to praise when we should, sure. but also help them to evaluate as well. So your room looks so much better now. Good job at cleaning it. That's what most parents would say. Yeah. Just walk in the praise. room. Oh, looks Ta-da. good. Looks good. Ta-da. Yeah. Okay. How would you turn that into self-reflection? How so? So how does it feel to be in your clean room now? What is that? How does that feel to you? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. to me, that's that's super cool. Because if they notice that it's a lot better. Yeah. What if they don't care? By the way. <laughs> I don't care, Dad. I no, but if I love that self-reflective kind of thing. How does – or I, you could even ask, what drove you – what were you feeling that drove you to want to clean it up so much and make it so clean and neat? Yeah. Try to figure out what the motivator you, was. Because you made me, Mom. Yeah. It's the rules. Because all of a sudden – I do that all the time with people where they, they may have had a really good day as a couple together. And then I have them go back and think, so what drove you to work so hard on it that day? Mm-hmm. What was it that you were feeling that yeah. you noticed? And hopefully a child is, is self-aware enough to say, yeah, I really like having a clean room. Yeah. Now, again, you might have kids that just go, I don't care. Yeah. And so what we're saying is, well, we're learning life skills, and I know you'll be happy about this. Well, and developmentally, they'll be able to see it more tomorrow. And, and you know what? I know that you'll be proud to invite your friends over to this room. Yeah. I'm just kind of those things because some kids will try to smack you back. Oh, yeah. um, let's do another one. Way to go. You played that song so perfectly. That's, again, parent yeah. making a judgment statement. A little evaluation there. Mm-hmm. I would then say, um, how does it feel to get through a piece with mm-hmm. so few mistakes or yeah. whatever? Yeah, you had you made a lot less mistakes today. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. Did you notice that? Did you notice how many less, you know, how, how, how faster did you get to that song yeah. today than you did yesterday? 
How's it feel? How's yeah. it how's it coming along? Yeah. That's cool. So what we're saying now on this one on evaluating themselves is I love you enough to give you opportunities to evaluate yourself and build a sense of pride in your accomplishments. Love it. That's real love, Matt. That's huge. No, that's huge. Mm-hmm. See, Julie, that's why you're the bomb mom. The mom bomb. The bomb mom. <laughs> that's why you're the, the child whisperer. That's why I'm a friend of Matt Townsend. That's exactly right. And that's why everybody needs to go to the website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Because that's where it's all happening. And you can get more information about her books, her publications. She writes in a blog, posts regularly on that, weekly at least. And if you want, you can go back to our last talk about gut flora. Yeah, I have that on there. That was huge. That was a great one. And I still can't get did over you, did it. Did you think about it afterwards? I did. I, I know. I still get a little gaggy. <laughs> well done. Julie K. Nelson's her name. Go check out her books, Spirit, Parenting with Spiritual Power, and Keep It Real, and Grab a Plunger. Interesting stuff as a parent, folks. We all need the tools. We can Any tool we can get will help. We'll take a break, come back, and visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Who better than Jimi Hendrix to lead us down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy. Happy Tuesday to you and happy Chocolate Day. Every day is Chocolate Day for are you, are you? Are you into chocolate? Uh, kind, normally, kind of. Yeah. Regular, I'm not a big chocolate. Doesn't that have caffeine in it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I don't like to eat chocolate yeah, because of the caffeine. Yeah, consume it. <laughs> is that why when I saw when I passed you in the hall the other day you had chocolate all over your face? Yep. Who would you be referencing, Jerem or Spencer or I, both? I'm going to go with both. Why in English is you and there you go nailed it <laughs> nailed Damn. it. Why is you and you the same word? Why can't there be a different word? Uh, because, I think so it should weird. be use use guys use guys. Want to use guys? Hey, use guys. Hey, hey, hey use guys. Hey, here's one for you. National Pizza Day. Today? Every, every day is pizza. I'm day going in to give you a quiz. We did the quiz on the morning show at 7 a.m. If you were listening, then you have an advantage. If you weren't listening, then you might fail the quiz. Are well, you ready? Then I'll have an advantage. I was literally in the shower. Uh, true or false? True or false? Cheese pizza is the most popular pizza ordered. True. False. It is false. The answer is pepperoni. Pepperoni, 36% of all pizza pies ordered are pepperoni. What about cheese? Cheese, uh, I didn't, it's not on the list. How could one possibly know that number? Well, I thought you uh, guys. Li- ate uh, Little Caesars, Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's, everyone. <laughs> Can you just tell us the exactly. ratios of everything? Yeah. Please? It's just a study, it's an easy study. Who wouldn't want to do this study? How many pizzas are sold in the U.S. each year? Each year. Not frozen, fresh. Fresh-ish uh, pizzas. 500 million. Wrong. Okay. Spencer. I don't know. <laughs> three, I have no idea. Three billion pizzas sold. Three billion. Taysom. Another one. Taysom. Another one billion uh, are frozen. So that's four billion pizzas sold. Okay, here's a... Here's four a, billion. And, and I'll, I'll go within two Star or three Wars points. Star Wars will earn a, a dollar... What, what every other pizza? What percentage 
of restaurants in the United States are pizzerias. What percentage of the restaurants are pizzerias? Mm-hmm. 18%. Uh, you are right. 17%. Seriously? Yep. What was it? 17%. 17%? Wow. Last one. Nice. And, and I need you guys to tell me. Really? <laughs> tell me if this is true in your world or not. Did you consume more than this? On average, Americans consume how many pounds of pizza annually per Ooh. person? I'm going to go with 200 pounds. 38. Oh, my gosh. That's a big difference. Obviously, Spencer likey the pizza. I love Likey the pizza. pizza. It's 23 pounds of pizza <laughs> wow. per person. So I'm going to bet Spencer pounds. eats a lot more than 23 pounds. And Jerem. Yeah, I probably eat like 50 pounds. Yeah, I do too. I have no idea how many pounds I eat. Well, you need to start weighing your pizza. No. Yeah, just a little. Just a little advice. for $200. And, and happy uh, pizza day. Every day is happy pizza. Thank every day is chocolate day for you guys too. What's that? For my about? wife, it's every day. Hey, um, you guys, you know, uh, you still going to do the show thing? That we are. What? Uh, Roughly an hour. I'm going to bet. If I'm a betting minutes. man, you're going to have some big stars. You'll probably have a guy from ESPN, Maddich. I'm guessing. Now you're underselling our show. No, I don't know. Who, who else? Over, overselling our show. Am I? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to set you up for failure. So what's on the show? Uh, more awesomeness, Just of course. Amazingness. Jeff Judkins. Former NBA guy, head coach of the BYU women's basketball team, a guy that played with Larry Bird as a Boston Celtic. Juddies. Okay. His team is rolling Jeff right Judkins, now. good ball coach. <laughs> I mean, hands down, the best team on campus right now. Killing it. Most accomplished, I yeah. should say, at this point. Most accomplished, yeah. They're, they're rolling. They're doing great. 12 so. straight wins. Uh-huh. So we're going to talk to him about what in the world is happening. Cool. And why he's not satisfied. He's and satisfied? Wow. I'm just telling you. Or is he? He's not. Also, ESPN produced a preseason football power index. Where did BYU come uh, in that? Where did they show up? Wow. And Jim okay. Fredette is currently playing right now. We'll update you throughout the show how he's doing in his uh, NBA D-League game. Not to mention, Matt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why BYU still has a shot to make the NCAA tournament not winning three games in Las Vegas. Wow. You're crazy. Everybody thinks that that is crazy talk. Does it involve a miracle? It does not involve no. a miracle. Okay. But there can be miracles when you believe. Absolutely. That's what I learned from Prince of Egypt. <laughs> there can be Maybe the greatest song of all time because it's Whitney Houston and Maria, Mariah Carey. Maria, Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. Yeah, you could have stopped at Whitney Houston. Yeah, quite possibly the greatest song of all time. Oh, yeah. Don't you miss Besides Whitney? Besides Lady Gaga's National Anthem. Do you think? Do you Just think Lady Gaga's national anthem beats was... Whitney Houston's? No, 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 no way! Okay, yeah. I'm just kidding. Good. Okay. Hey, but for real, it was did joke. You, did you see the funny vine of Lady Gaga yesterday? No, because no. like obviously the Star Spangled Banner starts with "Oh Say." Right. Okay, but one of her other songs starts. I think it's "Oh Whoa." Okay, someone had like <laughs> transposed like that into her Star Spangled Banner start. <laughs> It went viral. That's cool. <laughs> and that's on Vine? Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh, that's good. See, you guys, you make, you make our show more hip. 
It's Bad Romance. The name of the oh, song bad is romance. Bad yeah. Romance. Yeah. The, way, the Bad Romance starts. Bad starts romance. With, Whoa. Mm-hmm. Like someone combined those two with yeah. in her national anthem. Really funny. That's awesome. in a bad romance. So what do you guys think of her um, her song? She, I thought she did a great job. She's an incredibly talented vocalist. Yeah. And the people I, that think that she's not just aren't listening. She was trained uh, classically. Yeah, she's incredible. I like yeah. to yell, you open your ear holes. That's what I like to yell when people say that. Here's a question. Yeah. She looked like the Arizona Cardinal logo. <laughs> she who totally is more, Who is more like this day and age's Madonna, Britney Spears or Lady Gaga? Wow. Oh, I, I think it has to be Lady Gaga. Doesn't it? I don't know. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Debate that tomorrow Miley on the Cyrus. Show. Yeah. In fact, Debate, we're going to put that de- Yeah. Throw and, Miley Cyrus. Oh, and Miley Cyrus. Wrecking ball. Debate that. Selena Gomez. No. She came in like a wrecking ball, boys. I came in like a wrecking ball. Okay, you're going to have a great show. At this point, the plug gets pulled. You're going to have a great show. Top of the hour. I know you guys got to go get waxed and. We're ready to go. Waxed and ready. Okay, go knock them dead. And we're going to maybe leave you with a little bit of a. Maybe a little bit of a wrecking ball. I came in like a. Yeah! Thanks, guys. Great job. Have a killer show. Bye-bye. Knock him dead. Oh, man. That's true. I'm going to go with uh, Lady Gaga for the 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 most likely to be Madonna. Oh, my answer was right. What's great about uh, being on this side of the um, mic is that I get I have all the buttons. So if I want, all of my answers can be right. Like, uh, oh, does Ben... Is Ben very good at making ice cream? Oh, come on! Never mind. Hey, uh, a really interesting story we got to get you get to you because if you're out there looking for a job, have no fear. If you know anything about Legos, uh, Lego is searching for experienced builders to build models for their new Legoland facility in Florida. Excellent. So all of those many years... As a child of putting Legos together, they may set you up for a full-time job here, folks. The facility known as Merlin Magic Making Hub has 50 builders on staff and is seeking about 20 more to assist in building models for the various Legoland theme parks. That's a cool job. It's a brand-new production facility to make Lego models for Merlin attractions all around the world. The model shop supervisor, Ryan Wood, um, talked to Fox 13 in Tampa Bay, Florida. He said the official job description outlines a few requirements. It requires previous experience in Lego model building. That's architectural and sculptural. Basic computer knowledge and good knowledge of Lego parts, meaning you've got to know uh, a Lego part. Hmm. Good communication skills, the ability to give and receive constructive criticism, ability to work in a team, and have a positive attitude. Strong focus, concentration, good craftsmanship, patience, and a sense of humor are a must. Artistic education and background or experience helpful but not required. Also, you must bring your own slippers so as not to hurt your foot while stepping on a Lego piece. So if you're interested, look it up. Legoland in Orlando, Florida. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. You may have a new job. If you don't want that job, by the way, you can go to a business park in northwest Houston where a laid-off energy workers na- uh, a laid-off energy worker named Sean Baker has launched a strange business 
encouraging people to take out their frustrations on household furniture. The name of the company is Tantrums, LLC, and it invites frustrated people to demolish rooms full of stuff with sledgehammers and other implements of destruction. You can rent a room for either 10 or 15 minutes and destroy the contents of the room. Baker explained that whatever I put in there, you can destroy either with golf clubs, baseball bats, lead pipes, sledgehammers, or whatever else I can think of. Seems a little violent. Seems a lot violent. Customers pick their weapons of choice, walk into the room, bing, and the timer starts. And then they just start hitting everything from television sets to desks. And they wreak a lot of crazy, noisy havoc. Dishes and television sets are the most popular targets of destruction. But guests also like to destroy household appliances. It's only $35 for 10 minutes or uh, $50 for 15 minutes. We could probably do something similar for our taser. That's a great idea. Like you can tase somebody. Like a taser park. Exactly. That is not a bad idea. Taser park. Tase it. It does a family good. Bring your family together at Taserama. <laughs> Mommy, I don't want to go to Taserama again. Taserama scares me. Hey, we always like to end with a hero story. Our hero today is Byron Garzon. And uh, listen to the story. Raquel Gomez was born with Alport syndrome, a genetic disorder that can cause kidney disease. Starting in 2014, Raquel began requiring dialysis, connecting herself to a machine every day and every, or every night for about 10 hours. The couple could no longer travel, which was one of their favorite pastimes. But being on a machine every night from 9 p.m. put a damper on their social life. But their uncertain future didn't bother Baron Garçon. He proposed to his girlfriend on Christmas Day, but knew that the only way to a normal life was a new kidney. Raquel's mother and sister both tried to donate, but they had both had the wrong blood type. Suddenly a miracle. By sheer luck, Byron became the perfect kidney candidate when he learned his O blood type made him a universal donor. The nurses called them a match made in heaven. The couple underwent surgery, lying side by side in their beds in pre-op and then recovering in adjoining rooms. Raquel says she tells Byron every day that he's her hero. As well as planning a wedding, they talk about future vacations to Cuba. And after giving her the gift of health, Byron will be forgiven if he forgets Christmas next year. Anyway, Byron, you're the hero of the day, my friend, giving your kidney to your girlfriend. That beats a wedding ring any day. Anyway, that's the show, folks. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. Check us out on our podcasts on iTunes. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll talk again tomorrow.